Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Bartram and our guest Jeff Perry from 20th Century Camera. Hello Andrew. Hello Simon. And hello Jeff. Hello guys, how are you? It's great to have you here and I think we're both good. Are you good Andrew? I'm yeah, I'm not as excitable as Jeff. I, I was waiting for him to do his DJ introduction, but we won't, perhaps we won't frighten the listeners with that one. Yeah, just for the for the for the sake of our, our listeners, uh, Jeff has got up very early uh, for us, and he's he's now shown us up because he has far more energy than we have, and it's in the middle of our day yet. It's like I don't know if the sun's even come up in uh, in in the states where you are at the moment, Jeff. Has it? No, it's still dark, but luckily the caffeine is kicking in. <laughs> excellent excellent okay well um before we get going with the main part of the show i, I just want to say thank you to alice tomlinson for being our guest uh, for episode 16 um really really interesting uh, conversation there and uh, and yeah we've had lots of good feedback from that show um particularly interesting on the basis of you know how how somebody can you know get great photography with and just just sticking with you know one lens one camera and producing award-winning results so it's uh it was quite inspiring there um although it's not stopped me wanting to buy more and more lenses for my cameras but you know <laughs> there you go that's, that's 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 just my condition so uh um there you go um so uh, moving on for this week uh, let's head over to andrew and find out mm. what you've been up to in the last couple of weeks well um not so still still a lot more thinking about large format projects but in terms of actual doing things i was very excited to have two new acquisitions arrive yeah two new acquisitions so i don't think i had this last time we recorded but not sure so i, I had a polaroid um sx70 alpha one camera arrive in the post and that's uh, instant photography has been a thing of mine for many, many years. Uh, so I'm pleased to have that camera. I had a folding SX70 a few years ago and sold it. But uh, So getting back in, into that. And um, also had oh two, new th- two more things that I'm going to talk about in a bit more detail. One is um, a Horizon camera. So apparently I've got you to blame for this, Simon, in part. Yeah, I would imagine it would be all my fault. I think so, yeah. Um, so, but not just you, because I saw you shooting some brilliant wildlife photographs of seagulls with your Horizon camera. Uh, and then when I went on this uh, photo walk, Lomography and London Camera Project photo walk a few weeks ago in, in uh, London, funnily enough, uh, there was um, a lady using, and, and I do apologise, we are Twitter friends, but I can't actually remember a, a normal name or indeed a Twitter name, but I will find both out and put it in the show notes. He says, writing it down. But it was, uh, it was a woman in London though, just to narrow things down. At least, yeah. Some random woman in London with a, who happened to have a, mm. who happened to have a horizon camera. And so it's the first time I'd actually seen one being used. So I was just really impressed at the very lemography way she was using it, you know, like, put shooting it at people's feet and stuff like that and i just loved the way the lens rotated around if people aren't familiar with these cameras then it's there there are a number of iterations of them but they're all they all basically have a rotating lens that 
moves around a 120 degree angle of view and you can and the film plane is curved so it's in theory you're getting a nice sharp uh, image and some of the some of the pictures i've seen online i've not developed my first film yet look, look really good and uh, i'm very excited to uh, to develop the role of Eastman double X that I've got sitting in the darkroom. I, I did put a roll through this film camera, as you know, Simon, at the weekend and ended up ruining it. Um, I thought, I thought I'd ripped it to bits inside this camera, but I, I'd actually got to the end of the film without realizing and carried on winding and ripped it out of the cassette. Ah, and then I, um, yeah. Uh, and then I, I started rewinding it and thought, this doesn't feel right. And a little voice in my head said, whatever you do, don't open the back. So what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can see what's going on that way, can't you, at least? Yeah, I opened the back then so I could see what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> so that film gone, has gone for a Burton, as they say. But uh, I had read about this camera ripping sprocket holes. I think I think it only does that if you've loaded it incorrectly, and I'm, and I'm clearly not stupid enough to have loaded it incorrectly. So um, uh, I, I got home and did what I should have done with any new camera is find a dummy sacrificial roll and just play with it for a bit. So I did that and I decided that it was all good and I was quite happy to go again. And uh, I, I was out early this morning in the fens in the early morning sun with my spinning rotating lens horizon. But my one's got two ranges of shutter speeds. What, has yours got two ranges of shutter speeds? It, it, it does have the two ranges, but your your top shutter speed is twice as twice as fast as mine. So mine only goes up to one two fiftieth one two fiftieth of a second. But you've got a second slower speed, have you? Uh, oh, funnily enough, I've got it right in front of me. That wasn't planned, but I have. Uh, yeah, well. Yeah, you've got two ranges. So on the the fast range, you've got uh, 250, 125, and 60. Mm -hmm. And then on the slow range, it's uh, eighth, uh, fourth, and a half a second. Oh, that's the same as mine, but I've got the 500th. Yeah. Well, so on the slow range, though, have you got four speeds or three? I don't know. It's in the other room. Uh, uh, three, maybe? Uh, 60th, 30th, 60th, 30th. Is that right? No, I don't know. Eighth. No, I think I, th I think you've got five on your fast. You're gonna have. I'm guessing right, you got. I'm going uh, uh, keep yeah. talking. I'm going to go and get it. Yeah, go and fetch it. I well, <laughs> I, th I fancy bringing this up, and I'm, I'm the one that's uh, that, that's prepared, and I and I didn't even know we were going to talk about this. Um, but I I think as fast as speed is going to be five hundred, then two fifty, one two five and sixty, and I think that as slow as speeds are going to be a sixteenth, an eighth, a fourth. Right. half a second right i've always been amazed that you can handhold those as the lens sweeps across the film plane <laughs> yeah well we'll, we'll see oh dear i've just took a photograph while i was actually oh no that's not gonna be my best um i just accidentally shot it to shot one off um yeah they, they they just they just seem to be completely counterintuitive and then they they just surprise you with the the results that they get i mean what always makes me you know, smile about these things is it's called a horizon camera and you have a bubble level that you can see in, in the viewfinder but actually getting the horizon level it's massively difficult you know you may as well call it you know the can't get a horizon level camera uh, you know it's missing missing the bits before it and after 
uh, it's be just, close it's, enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, you get to the point where you say, "Well, forget it. Um, just, 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 just take the shot." And if you and you'll just have absolutely wild distortions. And I, I think the in many cases those wild distortions add to the fun of the uh, the shots that you actually get because the when you the the images that it's produced do not replicate what you see in the viewfinder. They from one side to the other, yes, you get that, but it you can't see the distortions. It's only when you actually get the uh, the, the negatives back do you think, oh my word, <laughs> you know. So uh, no, it's great fun. Well, I'm really excited. The first the, the role that I shot first of all, which turned out to be a ruined roll i use mostly tripod and i was i was trying to get the bubble lined up and at that point i hadn't realized you could see the bubble through the viewfinder hmm. which is really weird yeah i wouldn't worry uh, too much about the bubble i really wouldn't I no mean, i've, I've well, tried, to, tried to use the thing it, was, it still doesn't guarantee it i've got a bubble on my manfrotto tripod head and it was different to what this said so i was, <laughs> I, was I was really confused and i didn't know which bubble to use <laughs> yeah well that's that's an italian level and a, and a, and a russian level you know they're, yeah. they're not necessarily the same thing the other the other part to that is, with is if you if you are taking a, a shot and you have got a horizon in the shot such as you know where you're at the, you, at the you mean another camera or you mean the horizon no, no, well both um, so you've you've you're using your horizon camera at the seaside and you've got the sea and you've mm. got a horizon a very flat horizon um, if you're actually elevated then tr you you aren't actually truly level then i think you would probably still have to slightly compensate because you're slightly pointing down towards the horizon rather than mm. any other way so if you if you were truly level then the horizon is going to be below you and then you're still potentially going to get distortion so that's why i just gave up with it and just thought just yeah, embrace I'm, the distortion i think i'm just going to use it instinctively as opposed to trying to pretend it's a proper camera exactly uh, but now I've got it. So my model is an S3 U500, which came from Russia, uh, packaged as if it was new. In fact, it was described as old, old stock, new old, new stock. old stock. Yeah, came with a, a a pristine Russian handbook, which was very nice. But the uh, lady in Russia, who was who was called Kate, yeah, I know. Uh, she emailed me a, an English version, which is readily available anyway online because I found it elsewhere. And uh, a nice strap which says Zenit, but with the Z in Russian. Cyrillic. Russian Cyrillic. Cyrillic. That's it. It says like a backwards E, and then a, and then there's a forward E, and then there's an H, then there's a back to front N, and then a T. So it looks like Berchunt. <laughs> so it's a really cool strap. And then oh, and then it does say Zenit in English as well. So I've got it in Russian on one end, and and, and I, th I just love the strap. I think it's awesome. And it comes with a, a weird little handle that you can put into the bottom, which I think is just – I don't think I'll ever use that. Oh, you should. Really? Oh, you absolutely should. Why? Uh, because if you, if you hold the camera in a conventional manner as mm -hmm. on one side or the other, you'll get your fingers in the shot. Oh, maybe I've got that to look forward to when I develop the film. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> now you tell me. <laughs> well, but, it's there for a reason so uh, you know well yeah. okay um <laughs> so what else You're yes oh and there's some filters it came with some filters which i'm too scared to attach because it looks awfully fiddly and I'm, well, I'm and then it talks about getting them out by using one of the other filters somehow Correct, yeah it's not as once you've done it once you you get over it 
Mm. You know, it's not as bad as you think. But yeah, and then I was worried. Psych yourself up. And then I was worried as I was looking at this thing, the little door that moves as the in line with with the lens when the camera's at rest and indeed when it's cocked there's a gap there's a something like a four mil gap when the shutter is at rest and like two mil gap when it's cocked yeah. and i thought well that can't be right so i messaged m from emulsive who's got the exact same camera and said is this meant to be like this and he said yeah he says it takes a he says it's a bit unnerving isn't it because you just think what kinds of shit's going to fly in there you know which it probably would do so all in all, it's um, I'm very impressed. It's a very solid camera. It's 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 got a nice feel to it. Uh, I love the shape of it. It looks like a submarine or something. Or someone suggested it was like a Batman camera. Yeah. Well, well, to answer the question for why you went out the room for it, what are your four slow shutter speeds? Uh, well, there are three: an eighth, a quarter, oh. and a half. Oh right, so you got four fast speeds and yes. three. Oh, yeah. I see. 500, 250, 125, and 60. Yeah. Well, which it, are the only range I've used so far because well, well, yeah, yeah. because of how I've been shooting out in daylight, you know. Yeah, that that extra that extra stop of speed that's that's useful for if you're using fast fast film in um bright conditions. Um I I miss that. I'd like to have uh, had that. But my my Horizon actually has like a it has a blank for where you could where it could fit another shutter speed but it hasn't got it there so i've, I've got it just makes you feel like you've bought the so you, ball, when, the when you have it in that setting are you firing blanks <laughs> <laughs> it could be that but it's it's just like when in, in the old days when uh you know you buy a buy a car and uh you buy the the one you could afford and there'd be like mm. lots of blanks on the dashboard for, for yeah. with like you know electric windows could go there and a switch you, for opening young, the doors and young young people listening to this show right used to go and buy a car and if you didn't, if you were a tight wad you, and you couldn't afford it, you'd have like a little blank where where a cassette player might go one day if you yeah. could ever afford it. <laughs> Crank up windows, or yes. or a Super Eight. I remember getting in cars with the eight. What is it? Eight Super Eight? Not Super Eight. That's a movie film. Eight track. Eight track, yeah. eight track cartridges. Yeah. Not Super Eight. That would be weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> early early dash cam. But it comes with a nice bag. To, it comes with a lovely bag, uh, which I can fit my little Siconic lightweight meter in there, a roll of film, and those three scary filters, uh, which I don't know what they are. Um, if I read the instruction manual, I'm sure that I think one's a yellow one. One looks to be clear, so maybe that's a it's either a neutral density or. Well, there is a uh, UV, and and sorry, there is yeah, there's a, there's an ND, and I think there's a UV. And here's hmm. another pro tip for you: um, that handle. Um, it's got a um, at the bottom of it. You can unscrew it, yeah. And you can then, if you just get a bit of tissue paper or something like that, you can, if you position those filters correctly, you can wrap them in tissue paper and put them into the handle. Ah, yeah. Now I saw that I had a well. The handle's got clearly got is a hollow tube. I thought, oh, that's handy. And I tried shoving a 120 film in there. Then I thought, why would I want to shove a 120 film in there? <laughs> and then I was glad that there was no one looking at me and I wasn't going to share that story with uh, a few hundred people on the podcast, was I? No, no, you wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm going to develop the film t this evening along with uh, a, roll of, uh, a roll of 127 film that I put through my, re re uh, not repaired really, but uh, CLA'd. Yashica 44 that Linden from Londinium cameras sorted out for me. So I'm going to develop both of those in a tank 
with uh, some idea eleven at a temp- at a time that I'm just guessing at. Really, I was going to say your your printing is going to be interesting because they're a longer negative than you're used to with thirty-five. Well, I think initially, I think what I'm going to do with my first roll, I'm going to do a little WordPress blog on it. So I'll just scan them in, and I like to do a little WordPress blog on new things if I if I remember. So yeah, yeah but you but, might uh, you might want um, might need to use one of those enlarger heads that's got like a, a a mask that you can adapt to the shape of the film. But you yeah, but you can't just use a, a standard thirty five mil uh, no. negative holder. No, well I've got everything up to four or five negative holders with various masks and whatnot. Something will work. It's not a problem. So that's that. And the other exciting thing, um, while we're still talking about me, is uh, I'd backed a year or so ago the One Instant Peel Apart Kickstarter by Dr. Florian Caps, him of Polaroid and Impossible Project. He runs an analog store in Vienna called SuperSense, and it's like an analog hangout haven shop type thing. And he teamed up. They they teamed up with the Polaroid Twenty Twenty Four project. So there was a number of these twenty by twenty four Polaroid cameras, uh, of which they've got one. uh, And a lot of famous people did use them for portraits and stuff. uh, And they took the remaining, or quite a lot of the remaining film stock, and cut it down and put it into one shot paper cartridges as part of a Kickstarter and marketed it as one instant pack film. So each each little cardboard packet has one peel apart piece of film in, which is based on an old Polaroid emulsion called P7. And it's kind of, um, if you're used to shooting Fuji FP100C, it really isn't that. But if you go onto one instant's uh, website, uh, there's some lovely shots of a, a model shot in France, lady in uh, in a red dress, and uh, that's uh, that's that's really nice. So I'm I'm very excited to use that because large format, folks. I'm going to use it in a Polaroid back, which fits onto my large format camera that Jeremy North gave me when we met Jeremy in Birmingham last year. He uh, he gave me this Polaroid back, which I've been sitting with for all this time, ready for one instant to make a, a comeback. Jeff, you were, we were talking off air about this one instant, weren't we? And you said you'd seen somebody on YouTube using this material? I did. And uh, it's, um, like you said, if if you're looking for Polaroid FP100 or uh, Fuji FP100C, it's not that. Um, it's more like... Uh, Polaroid Type 59 or the 669. Um, you know, it's an older film stock, older reagent. So the colors are soft. It's it, it's a nice effect. I think they've I think they've got fresh reagent in there. I think I, I can't okay. be sure. don't hold me to that. I think it's just the film stock, which is old polaroid film stock i imagine it's been stored quite well but anyone who's used any of the color film stocks like 690 for example um 125i some of those things that are kicking around um it has that kind of look which i actually really love and so i'm i'm very excited to use it 
Um, I, I buy more of it when I can afford it because it's not cheap. Um, but then well, when you when you when you dig around when you dig around, point. sorry, Jeff. No, I was just saying either is. Uh, the Fuji FP100 at this Well, point. no. I mean, I was buying the Fuji stuff when it was $7, uh, $7 a pack when I last went to the States. I was, in fact, I bought, I bought stuff that was short dated at $4 a pack and I got like 200 quid's worth of it and filled my fridge with, you know. Now you can't get it much less than $50 a pack of 10. Yeah, I think that's about the going right. But the one instant stuff is, I mean, it's basically handmade. So it's, you know, it's not going to be cheap. I think when they've got rid of, when they've worked through the emulsion that they've got, they're working with other film partners. I don't know who that might be to try and come up with a replacement. So they're hoping to make a viable go of it, you know. And, you know, if you've, if you like instant photography, nothing's cheap, is it, in in traditional photography? So you, 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 you pay your money and take your choice, really. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to shooting it. Um, I probably shot, you know, 30 packs of Fuji uh, FP100 last year, and I think I'm down to my last two packs. Mm. So I'm looking for for something, <laughs> because I love instant photography. Yeah. Okay, Simon, um, that's me done, I think, for the week. Okay. Um, I was just going to say, I've got nothing nothing really to add on instant photography at all. I've, I've never really, it's just never caught my imagination. I don't, I don't know what, I mean, there's in stacks now as well, isn't there out there? But uh, Yeah, that's not, I'm not so, my boat's not so floated with uh, in stacks, but I shoot the in stacks mono wide and out in the out in the fens and get some nice pictures. Mm. And it's, it's fun to take to parties because, you know, the film's cheap-ish. Yeah. But I love using... When I put away my pack film cameras for what I thought was the last time, I was really sad, you know. And I, I still love using the integral stuff with my SX70, my new SX70 uh, Alpha 1. Actually, you've just reminded me of something that um, connected with this because uh, I'd forgotten I'd actually bought this. Well, I bought a, a woolen sack lens uh, last week uh, because I saw it at the last minute going quite cheaply on a MPP board. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a woolen sack, 127 mil, 4.5. Um, really nice, and, and, uh, and with a with a Polaroid shutter. And I subsequently realised that yeah, it was it's from a Polaroid camera, um, mm. the, probably the kind you're, you're talking about there. So I'm I'm guessing that this lens might not actually cover four by five. I've not actually checked it yet, or it. Uh, well, if it's the, the peel apart film is is getting towards four by five, but it's not quite, mm. can't remember the exact dimensions. Um, so, uh, I may have, I may have bought a shiny lens that is going to get, is going to be of limited use to me. It certainly won't have any no. movements in there. Will it really? I think that's going to be Probably the not, handicap. Give it, give it a go. Yeah. But it looks nice. <laughs> mm. It's very, it's very pretty. It's very, very clear and very shiny and, uh, and very, very well made. And I, I, I like my woolen sack lenses as well. So I'm sure it's going to be a good lens. And if nothing else, it's just got a lovely comforting sound, doesn't it? Woolen sack. It does. You just want to sort of hunker down on a cold <laughs> November night in a woolen sack <laughs> with a glass of red wine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, this, this couple of weeks for me, um, large format wise uh, was 
Funny enough, I talked at length on the Classic Lenses podcast about a couple of lenses that I picked up this week, which I won't go into. But if you want to know more about the Carl Zeiss Jena 75mm Biotar 1.5, which I've fallen in love with, along with a Taylor Hobson 2-inch Anastigmat, uh, which is even even sexier than that, but seriously expensive and one that I've bought and I'm going to have to is, sell it. Because is that a lens that's had its eyeballs corrected for astigmatism? Yeah, exactly. No, it hasn't had them corrected. That's why it's anti-stigmatic. Uh, it has or it hasn't? I'm confused now. Well, it, well it's Anna. It than, yeah. Ah. It works well anyway. Does it? <laughs> yeah. It produces, it, it gives it gives nice effects, uh, especially on digital. It looks really good. So okay. uh, um, the camera, it came with a Reed camera, uh, which is a, a British uh, copy of uh, a Leica 3, uh, Leica 3B it's based off. And uh, there were quite a few of these cameras. I wasn't going to talk about this, um, but uh, I'm just 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 to finish off where I started. Um, the the Reed cameras are very very well sought after because of of all the uh, knockoffs, if you like, of the Leica cameras after the after the Second World War. Uh, the Reed is probably. Uh, the best, and um, some people take the view that the the engineering in the Reed cameras is is even higher than the than Leica was doing at the time. Um, how true that is, I don't know, but uh, it's a beautiful camera. There's no two ways about it. Although the one I've got has actually got a fault on it, and to open these things up is a bit of a nightmare um, because they don't open up in the same way as a normal Barnack uh, Leica would, uh, because you've got these two sync ports on the front of it. And you need to know exactly how to remove those sync ports before you can get the mechanics out of the uh, body of the camera. Um, so that's mm. a little problem that we have at the moment. <clears throat> but on the large format side, uh, two things have happened this week. What, what are they now? I've got them written down somewhere. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, the first one is that uh, Robert Price, who's a new newish member into the, our podcast group, which is the large format photography podcast group, uh, turned up at the Six Towns Darkroom Club, which is uh, the the darkroom club that I'm part of. and go there every Tuesday, and I usually do a little shout-out to say, come along if you're in Cheshire or Stoke-on-Trent Stoke or uh, Staffordshire. Um, every Tuesday night, we, we do all things uh, developing and processing and things like that, and uh, there's, a, there's potential. We may even have a 7x5 and larger heading our way um it's uh, it's tantalizingly close that we may actually be able to uh, have you got to go and pick it up um possibly so uh, uh we've also need to work out whether we've got space to fit it in in, in where, where it needs to go as well so uh, we, we're still working that one out at the moment so uh, i think i've seen it i think i when i was last in steve segersby's garage which was not the garage he has now which was when he lived somewhere else i was there to pick up from him my uh, uh devere for uh four by five in larger that i bought off him and he had there was a, a another weird old enlarger sat in the corner which i think is probably that one yes yeah it's uh it's it's one of the i forget what they call them is it are they uh, there's there's different types of enlarger isn't there and, and they most of them these days are one type, and then the older type is—is is it condensing and larger, or is it cathode, or I can't remember. What well, you're talking about the light source there, aren't you? So yeah, I think it's got something to do with the light source. I think there's a different way of doing it in the old days. Well, there's there, there are several. Cold cathode was one. That's a, I think that's a very very 
contrasty, almost point source light. But I could be wrong. I think that's what it is, you know. There's uh, condenser lenses, uh, enlargers, which tend to use a sort of household tungsten bulb or something. You could probably replace it with an LED bulb these days, sitting above a set of condensers. Mm. Uh, the lens, it's the 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 light bulb itself was usually an opal lens that you bought uh, a lens, an opal frosted glass that you would buy from Patterson. They used to sell them. You could probably get them elsewhere, or you could maybe fashion a diffuser to go in there. And then you have a diffuser enlarger, which is used color head, which is used in color heads, where it could have been a tungsten lamp shining into a white soft boxy type thing, which kind of softened the light and bounced it around, and then directed it down through through the enlarger lens i think it's the cold cathode I yeah think that's I the, the kind that it is don't know much about those but yeah. no doubt somebody will um, enlighten us in the facebook group yeah i might be finding a lot more out about those have you got to go and buy you got to go and buy a cold cathode from somewhere i, I think it, i think everything's there but i've not had an in detailed conversation with steve yet so mm. uh, um we'll see we'll see excellent Oh, that's really good news. It is. 5x7 it is. as well, because a lot of people talk about 5x7 as being in many ways the sort of perfect large format format, don't they? Because it's nice enough to do a reasonable size contact print. You know, for, I mean, you can do that with uh, 5x4, but f- um, 5x7 is, uh, is and, and the cameras aren't so unwieldy as 8x10s. Mm. Yeah, I, like, I, I certainly... I certainly like the idea of that, um, so we'll 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 see what happens on that one. But the uh, mm. um, so apart from that, we may be getting uh, be able to do that that uh, some large format uh, enlarging, which would be really exciting. Um, yeah. But uh, Robert Price, a new member of our our group, uh, turned up with a gorgeous Toyo four x five monorail camera uh, in its uh, metal case. Mm. I was knocked out by it because I mean I, I was quite taken with my Cyanar. Uh, which is a bit lighter, but it's I just just like the way how this Toyo works because it's it's got loads of geared movements, and I love geared movements. I think geared movements are the best. Um, so um, and that's what this does. I mean, it weighs weighs a ton, but it's just beautiful. That's a monorail. Monorail, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, very impressed by that. So uh, so that uh, I've been having a little play with that. And the other thing was uh, not this week, but the previous week. I actually and I, and I posted a picture of it. Um, I actually managed to do my first uh, successful contact. Print. I saw that. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> I was giving myself a round of applause when I did that. Was, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm really, really pleased that I was able to. It do was that. of a sort of waterfall. You seem to have. Yeah. You seem to have printed it, so you've got some highlight uh, retention there, and uh, the blacks look nice. You know. Yeah. From what I was, could, from what I could tell. Good whites, good blacks. I think ov- overall it was. Pr- I think it was a little. The overall finish was slightly darker than I needed to needed to be, and certainly in some areas. So I th- I'm. I think I'm now ready to start playing with dodging, dodging and burning next. Well, remember, I, I, did you just print it at one contrast? Yes. Setting on, and the, I did that on expired paper, mm-hmm. and it literally it was in the developer for about two minutes before uh, I would take it out. I mean, if it was. You know, taking it out within say a minute, it it would hardly have any kind of image on it at all. You know, this this paper is very old, um, but just leaving it in for longer just just did the trick. And I think it was Ansel Adams had a guide, uh, and I might get the factor wrong. It might be five or seven, but it was something like this: if you watch the uh, 
if you watch the tones coming up in the print, when you're starting to get some mid-tone density visible, start a timer or start counting. In fact, start counting from the time it goes into the developer to the point where you see some mid-tone detail. And then multiply that by, I'm going to say five, but it might be seven. Anyway, and that's the factor. And then as the developer ages through the printing uh, and session, or maybe you're using old paper, maybe yes. it's the same sort of thing, yeah. then by multiplying it, then you, you, you know you're developing your print to, you know, to, to completion. Because you should always develop your print to completion. You shouldn't be tempted to yank it out when mm. it looks right, you know? If you develop it to completion, which is normally like five or seven times that mid-tone emerging time, then uh, or you can do tests for what's your maximum black and all this sort of stuff. But also, as you start to play around with contrast filters in, in time, particularly if you're into split-grade printing, then it's very easy. Andrew Sanderson will talk about this at length. Uh, it's very easy to um, go just a little bit too far. With You don't have to... M- um, extend the time much at the hard contrast end of things to completely lose your shadow details. It's a very steep curve, and you the, the adjustment in time to just suddenly open up those dark shadows using when you're into the high contrast end of things is um, uh, the adjustment's very, 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 very fine. So um, you've got all, all that uh, world of excitement to come through to come to. Well, I've got to say, I'm, I'm really enjoying being in the dark room. It, it's you can just stay in there for hours once you once you start to get a, a hang of what you're actually doing um even though you're you know, throwing lots of bits of paper into the bin it, it's it's just it's yeah you've got to you got you mustn't think of it as wasting pictures it's just part of the learning mm. curve you know you, your bin should be full up yeah well fortunately we've got a, a large supply of very old film so i don't i don't feel too bad about Paper waste, yes, sorry, paper. Um, so I don't feel too bad about uh, messing these things up, and uh, and then when once once I actually get to the point where I've got a, a feel for what I'm doing, then I'll probably start to use uh, something something a bit bit newer and perhaps in date even. Yeah, I mean the only problem with using old paper is it can get unduly fogged, you, and you can add things to the developer to try and unfog it, um, but. What you don't want to do is to have paper that's so poor that you're just disheartened by the results. You know what I mean? Well, I th- I thought that was the case initially, but it just I seem to get I, I managed to get over that by just leaving it in the developer for longer. Yeah, that's probably going to help you a bit. Yeah, excellent. Well, I'm I'm really I'm re- it's really good, isn't it? Excellent. Yeah, it is. But my trouble is all my projects that I've got now bubbling under are all darkroom related, and. I'm at my best in the morning. You know, by the time I get to the end of the day, um, I just, you know, I have to really, really force myself to go in the darkroom because all I just want to do is veg out somewhere, you know? Mm. And it's really lazy of me. And I think I should be doing something much more productive than this. And, uh, you know, day, weekends really is when I need to, I need to get up and get straight in the darkroom because that's when I'm most fired up. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So that's my uh, couple of weeks. And how about you, Jeff? What you've been up to lately? No, I've been chained to my computer desk. <laughs> I have. Uh, oh, I've been working on new film reels for the last couple of weeks. I have uh, three big bad cameras that are working their way through the shop uh, that are hopefully going to ship on Friday. 
So if my customers are listening, I'm working on them. <laughs> Just not at this moment. Just not at this moment. But it is an ungodly early hour, so you know they uh, they'll probably forgive me for that. Uh, so yeah, have uh, have five 3D printers running. Um, so I'm always feeding those. Um, I, uh, I wish I had some time in the last couple of weeks to actually go shoot some photographs. Uh, one of the nice parts about doing the big cameras is, uh, I'll take those out and shoot some photos with them and make sure the focus is nice and the shutter speeds are as advertised. And, you know, it's nice to have a, a record from the camera. So when, you, I built. so when you say a big camera, what kind, what kind of cameras are we talking there? I'm talking uh, four by five or five by four, um, big Graflex SLRs. Right. They're, uh, you know, uh, 13 pounds of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, folks do handhold them. Uh, probably a little more stable on a tripod, though. And there's, they really don't resemble the original camera when I'm done with them, other than the box. Yeah, I've seen seen your cameras, and you, and there's there's always a flash of red somewhere, isn't there? There is, there is. I uh, I, I like the little accent. It's my homage to Mister Lights. Yeah. So. <clears throat> um. Yeah, but that's about it. Um. I'm kind of a dull boy lately, uh, just sitting, trudging along. So it's uh, it's the fun of, uh, you know, starting a new business and trying to trying to get it up and moving and profitable. You know, it takes a lot of effort. And like I said, I, I sit and sit at my desk for <laughs> eight to ten hours a day and just chug through the design software. Well, this this is probably then a good time to find out a bit more about yourself. Um, so, your company is Twentieth Century Camera, isn't it? Correct, correct. The little town of Woodland, Washington. Right. Uh, well, just just for for those people over on this side of the pond, that Washington is that Washington State or is that Washington D.C. kind of thing? Uh, Washington State on the uh, on the west coast That's of it. the United. It's uh, not too far from where all the Twilight books were filmed. Right, right. So misty, dark, rainy. So are you going to say, you, I, I heard a breath there, Andrew. Were you going to say something then? Well, I thought about it and then I thought better of it. <laughs> <laughs> Coward. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, let's let's get a bit a bit more background on you. So uh, you 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 have twenty century camera where you're doing all these modifications and and making things and so on. But how how did you get there? What's what's your journey to to this point? You know, where where how did you get into photography and how did that take well, you to four by five and so on? It's funny. I've been. Uh, I think I got my first camera, film camera. You know, when I was six or seven, um, by the time I was 10, I had uh, a little Yashica rangefinder, great little camera. Uh, 
by the time I was in junior high school, I had a, uh, a Vivitar 35 millimeter. Um, my stepfather was a, uh, was a, was a photographer and, uh, really encouraged it. Um, and encouraged it without commentary, you know, um, basically here's the camera, go out and shoot. Um, we'll talk about the photos afterwards, maybe a little bit, but you know, he instilled that there's no, that the best way to learn how to shoot is to go out and shoot, right? The, the more exposures you, you get, the better you're going to get. Um, anyway, so photography has always kind of been a part of my life. Um, by vocation, I'm a mechanical engineer that has worked in the aerospace and high-tech industry for the last 30 years. Um, but I've still always had that, that photography bug. And probably about 15 years ago, I started to get into large format photography. I, I bought a crown graphic, uh, a Graphlex crown graphic four by five used and just fell in love with it. And, you know, in my spare time started making enhancements for myself for those for those and then uh four or five years ago uh picked up a graphlex slr and uh man it's it was a game changer um and being a design engineer you know anytime i you know i i needed something or said you know this could be better if if this was like this i had the ability to uh to design it and the last eight years of my career i worked for a large 3d printer manufacturer so i had uh tons of 3d printing resources so it made it easy so you know being a photographer i started building stuff for myself and i would post it on instagram and other folks would see it and start asking about it. And that's kind of how the big camera thing developed. I was building these exotic large format SLRs for myself. And folks started reaching out to see if uh, I would build one for them. So, Jeff, if I can just ask a, a question, because while you were talking, I was I just went onto, onto the Google and typed in Graphlex SLRs, and you get a nice sort of page that comes up with all the Graphlex cameras, some I think mostly I was familiar with, because uh, you'd mentioned you'd picked up a Graphlex SLR. Uh, and so presumably then there's this, so there's, is it the model, the Graphlex RB Super D? Is that is that the boy? Um, I do have one of those, but it's, it's the, so there's several different models of the Graphlex SLRs. So they started with, um, I think the Autographlex was the first. Mm -hmm. Then uh, there's a Series B okay. uh, that was made in the 1920s, 1930s range. They progressed a little more to the Series D, which was more sophisticated, um, interchangeable lenses. Um, and the pinnacle of development was the Super D. Which, yeah. which 
had an auto diaphragming lens on it, which was fabulous. You could, you would end up cocking the lens, uh, the diaphragm on the lens, opening the iris all the way up. So you could focus and you would preset the, uh, uh, the aperture, the f-stop on it. So when you release the shutter, it would stop down to whatever you had the aperture set at. And then uh, the mirror would flop up and it would expose the image. Yeah, it says an automatic diaphragm is provided on the Super D Graflex. This camera can be focused with the lens wide open. The diaphragm then automatically resets itself to a pre-selected lens opening while the mirror is rising before exposure. It's way, way lower tech than it sounds there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the picture is... So the picture's not really anything like the pictures on your website. So the, the, you're right. From what I can see, uh, there's a box... The original camera had this, what looks like some kind of weird waist level finder. Yeah. Made out of, made uh, out of collapsible material. Yeah, it's a leather chimney. A leather chimney, of, that would be, yes, with like a, almost like a monocular, um, binocular type, uh, you know, viewfinder at the top. That's what it looks like, sort of. Yeah, it's a, it's a little wider. You can actually get both eyes on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's what it looks like because you can get some of those adapters for field cameras can't you the binocular yeah yeah and i i actually make a little magnifier that'll slide down into those um that flips up and flips down to make it a little easier to focus um it's got bellows and then it's got a lens hood which again looks like a leather lens hood but it's it's not like a lens hood that i'd recognize today this thing is uh like a uh, like a little rain hood thing uh, what that the, is, yeah. on the on the front of the on the front of these cameras they have a flip up lens cover hmm. that actually acts as the sunshade that that would make sense yeah so the sides yeah. press in and the front comes down i'd imagine yeah exactly yeah, it's quite clever though isn't it it is. So there, you take small... you take one of those, do you? You you take one of those and Frankenstein it. Basically, I uh, I what I usually end up using is the shutter assembly uh, mm-hmm. and the box. <laughs> um, everything else, you know, pretty much ends up being new on the camera. But I will say. Everything I do to the cameras is reversible. Uh, there's no one-way modifications. There's no destructive modifications to the camera. There's a lot of purists out there that cringe when they see the cameras I do. So I just want to throw that out there. You know, no animals were harmed in the filming of this movie. <laughs> so, anyway, um, so I end up with the box and the shutter itself. Um, the focus screen that I put in, oh, I, I put in a focus screen assembly that's spring loaded, um, that's adjustable at three points. So you can set the, set the planarity between the focus screen and the mirror perfectly. Uh, so you can use the, the full length of the image, which is important when you're using the great big fast lenses, uh, f2.5 lenses that I tend to use on these cameras. 
Um, brand new mirrors. Uh, occasionally, there's a new front standard on them. Uh, they get a a new view hood that has a Fuji Jack 680 angle finder in it, hmm. which actually reverses the image. So it's like looking through a, a modern SLR. Left is left, right's right. You know, nothing's upside down. The movements aren't backwards. And what this does is allows you to focus these things to really low light situations. And in normal lighting, you can get tack sharp images. And that's really the downfall to the big uh, leather view hoods. Um, <laughs> you know, especially if you're over 30. <laughs> you know, your close up vision isn't what it used to be. So, and ultimately, that's why I started doing the angle finders was I just couldn't focus the damn things anymore. So I, I figured there's got to be a be a better way to skin this cat. Are they, so folks send you generally uh, a, a Graflex SLR. Do, do they send you, do, does, do they, does it have a, a lens built in or is it a removable lens as it comes, um, you know, from, from new? It, it depends. Um, there's usually a convert. Well, there's definitely a conversation beforehand, and uh, we create a statement of work uh, that defines what the customer's looking for and exactly mm. what's going to happen with the camera. Um, sometimes the camera will come with a lens. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. Um, I'm doing a, a camera right now that. Um, it's a super D so it's designed to work with the auto diaphragmic lens, but you know, the customer doesn't own that lens anymore. Right. So, you know, we're putting a, uh, a Dalmeyer, uh, 254 millimeter F 2.9 lens on it. That's just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it has, uh, has a diaphragm in it. It's not a projector lens. It's, is that a uh, lens that the customer had, or is that a lens that... It is, uh, it is. Yeah. and uh, I, I I can only imagine how much you paid for this lens. It, it looks brand new. Simon probably has one. Oh, <laughs> Oddly. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's quite the lens. Uh, but I'm building, the, 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 building sorry, the camera around that lens. Okay. Uh, but I do build them to where the customer can use the auto-diaphragming lens as well. It's a great lens. Um, I have a photographer in, in the Bay Area, San Francisco area, uh, that uses the auto diaphragming lens on the big camera uh, with studio flash equipment, and just fantastic images. So, what, what lens would that be then, uh, with the auto diaphragm? Uh, it's an Ektar Kodak Ektar 190, 190 millimeter f five point six. Right, yeah. right. And would that be, because there's, there's quite a few of these Graflex uh, sizes, you know, I mean, they, they go 2 by 3 all the way up to 5 by 7 don't they? So is that is that a 5 by 7 with it being 190 mil? Or no, no, that's a, that's a 4 by 5 Because right. um, it's quite a long standard, that is, isn't it? Well, that's because the flange length on the SLRs is really long. 
Um, so you have to run a fairly large lens. Right. Um, otherwise, you won't be able to uh, to achieve it. Just uh, so it's normally Simon asking the simple questions. Just for the sake of people who aren't like lens nerds, just rewind and explain that again, would you please? In um, uh, you know, you talked about long flange length. Uh, basically, flange length is the minimum distance uh, from the back of the lens to the film plane. Um, Wide-angle lenses tend to have a really short flange length. That's why you end up with bag bellows, right? So you can get the lens right up against the film plane. Um, is it because it's got the mirror in it? It's an SLR and the mirror's got to move, is that? Exactly. Is that and you have a large mirror in it. Uh, and you've got a, this is a focal plane shutter, so we're not talking about um, shutters in the lens right. assembly, are we? We're talking about a shutter, some kind of curtain-type yeah. shutter, like a speed graphic-y type shutter, which you wind up somehow, is it? It's, it's In theory, it's identical to a speed graphic. Okay. Uh, as far as uh, the rolling focal plane shutter goes. Right. Um, the mechanism's a little different, but if you can run a speed graphic, you can run one of these. Just, just to be, just continue on the on the lens nerdery, uh, if I may. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the uh, what's what's interesting there is that they just simply went with a large, a larger, uh, a longer focal length rather than and effectively just as a, a normal lens design, rather than uh, trying to curve the light. For a, like a wide angle, a traditional wide angle lens would have, say, on a um, an SLR camera, thirty five mil. So these are SLR cameras on a on say a thirty five millimeter lens, where you'd have uh, ca a film camera, where you could you, you've you've got the fixed flange distance because you you just put your lens onto the mount, and it doesn't matter whether it's a long lens or a short lens; it's got the same flange distance, but the the light is is curved or it, it gathers the light in a, in a different way and it, so he pulls the light in and then straightens it and and so he goes on onto the film plane whereas these lenses that we're talking about here are, are just like a, a normal lens designs uh, very simple uh, designs and therefore yeah, they, they chose to do the simple plan. route yeah and and i think i think you hit the nail right on the head they they did go the simple route um, the 190 millimeter Ektar lens was something that was in the Kodak catalog already. Uh, they built a auto diaphragming body or uh, basically a shutter assembly with the iris with no shutter in it. Uh, so the and with that said, the smaller cameras like the three by four, uh, which is actually three and a quarter, four and a quarter, but Three by four is just easier. Um, they they run the 152 millimeter uh, Ektar lens on it, uh, which is really the same lens I, I run on my uh, on my Crown Graphic press cam and love. It's a fantastic lens. I've I've got so, that lens on my Meridian as well. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, so I I think convenience was. Uh, the reason for a lot of the lens choices. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's, because ultimately Graflex, uh, is that the name of the actual company? Were they called Graflex? Or were they, because I've, I've seen Singer Graflex, which I think was later, wasn't it? So. Well, it started as, I think it started as Bulmer Swing. And then uh, it was Bulmer Swing, a, a, a division of Kodak, is Kodak Bottom. Um, and then it became Graflex and then General Precision uh, bought them, and then finally Singer uh, sewing machine manufacturers bought them in the late '60s, and uh, kind of put the put the company to bed in '73. Yeah. Well, the, so it. Sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say the, the the point the point being, of course, that they were camera manufacturers and they weren't lens manufacturers, so they weren't. Um, to, to get this more complex design, they would have to go to a, a, a lens company, whoever that might be, and right. get them to specifically design the optics to fit around the, the body of this. And of course, the, the numbers that they were producing and the overall market for that type of lens was going to be tiny, relatively speaking. So producing lenses that would give you a wider field of view with that flange length, it was just going to be uneconomic. So they just said, well, that's it. We'll just go with normal lenses and just have to be longer and be done with it. Exactly, exactly. Which, uh, you know, the upside of that is these are incredibly wonderful portrait cameras. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not something you're you're really going to shoot architecture with or, or landscapes, even though you could. But, you know, when you have these big, you know, 200 millimeter plus, uh, you know, F2.5, F2.9 lenses... Uh, you know, they're just portrait monsters at that point. It reminds me a little bit of my RB67 because it's, uh, reading a bit more, it talks about the Series D and Super D Graflex cameras are equipped with a revolving back. There you go. That's what the RB stands for. I know, yes. So there we go. I think, I'll, having looked on eBay, I think I'll stick with my RB67, quite frankly. <laughs> so there's, there's Scary one. prices on well, the 4.5s yeah, right there's, now. There's one that looks like it's had some work done on it. I just typed in uh, Graflex uh, SLR into eBay while you were chatting. And there's the first one that comes up is Graflex Super D 4x5 SLR camera. Maybe this is it, why it's £4,000 they want on it. 178mm f2.5 Aero Ectec. Aero Ektar cam camera. That yeah, must it's mean funny. Like, like, like Liberator. What's what's that one? What do they mean? Um, there is a, a camera builder in Florida, uh, John Minnick, who takes the three by four Graflex SLRs and puts a hundred and seventy-eight millimeter f two point five Aero Ektar. Uh, aerial photography lens from World War II onto the front of mm. onto the front of the camera. Um, it's 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 a gorgeous, it looks nice, well made camera. But I tell you what, I, I've actually sorry, Mike, I've seen on. that camera that's on eBay, yeah. and it's not really a four by five. No, it's a three and a quarter, four and a quarter camera, um. and. And close, they're close, probably, close enough, close enough four by five. <laughs> well, it's probably a square format. You're probably mm -hmm. shooting four by four square out of the back of the camera. Um, so, yeah, there's that camera's had a, a bit of de de 
debate on uh, some of the message boards. In fact, most of them that pop up on the bay are three and a quarter, four and a quarter. Yeah, and it's a, it, it was the most produced out of all of them. And are they, are they, do you take those ones as well and do things to them, or has it got to be a four by five camera? Um, no, I, I do quite a bit of work with the three by fours. It's what I shoot. It's what oh, yeah. I, I started uh, working on originally. The, the form factor is nice. Um, it's about oh, three quarter scale to the four by five. Um, are you, into, are you into the practicalities around the film, getting the film in that size, or are you somehow shooting larger well, size film? What, what do you do about that and dark slides and stuff? What I do is I I make a a back for the cameras that allows you to use four by five film. Right, that makes sense. Right, on the back of the three by four cameras, um, I actually build a graph lock back that goes on. Um, and that kind of solves the three by four. Where do I get it from? Dilemma and it's expensive. It, on your uh, website, you've got a four by five Graflex F SLR graph lock conversion back. Is that is that it? That's one of them. I I make about four different flavors of them now. Um, okay. I make one for the four by five SLRs. That's basically a bolt on. You unscrew the uh, the film tray off the rotary mechanism and screw this one back on. Uh, you don't it. The distance from the the back of the graph lock backs and the film planes identical to the original, so you don't have to adjust the focus screen. I do the same thing for the three by fours, so you can have a three and a quarter, four and a quarter rotating back camera that shoots on. Four by five film. Um, I also do a four inch square conversion for the three and a quarter, four and a quarter cameras, and that's what I shoot primarily. I like the uh, square mm -hmm. format, and jokingly they refer to those cameras as grapple blads. Yeah. So it's it's like a what? giant hassle blad. Most of these uh, three and a quarter, four and a quarter one. In fact, all of them I think are from the USA. Um, I haven't seen any UK sellers yet, but uh, it seems like you can pick up a three and a quarter, four and a quarter um, reasonably. Well, I don't know. Three and a quarter, four and a quarter RB Auto Graflex SLR No Reserve, sixty pounds. But that's just no bids. Three days. Now the Auto Graflex, um, those are. Those have the lo uh, longest flange length of any of the SLRs that Graflex made. Right. Um, so lenses for those become a bit dicey. Yeah, that's why it's cheaper. <laughs> so mm. it's, if right, you're close eBay, work. Andrew. Close eBay, Dan. Don't be. Just stop it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let's moving moving things on from uh, what you do with modifying cameras. Um, the, the the thing that's thing uh, that's uh, been exercising you lately is uh, film holders, isn't it? And uh, so you can develop uh, large format film using Patterson tanks and things like that. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it's been all-consuming lately in a uh, in a good way. Um, this was, uh, and let's define these things correctly. They're film processing rigs. Uh, therefore, developing large format film. Uh, and like I said, in Patterson tanks, and now I have a variant for the uh, uh, Jobo 2550 uh, drum. Uh, it'll do for 8x10 and 5x7. Anyway, <laughs> the uh, kind of the origin of those is, you know, doing large format, I'd always used, oh, like Yankee tanks or FR tanks to manufacture. Um, and it's a 12 sheet box, you know, daylight developing tank. And they're hard to agitate. They're, they're messy, cumbersome. And, you know, started to play around with different ways to, to process that was more effective and just easier in general. Um, so I, I started playing with, with large reels and uh, kind of fell into this, this design that has a center clip that retains the film. And it, uh, it's very robust. So if you're doing immersion, agitation, the film's locked in. Uh, more than anything, they're super easy to load and unload. And, you know, since you're doing this in the dark or in a dark bag, um, you know, I think that's every bit as important as producing a good image uh, from the developing process. And, and I think these reels kind of do both at this point. I've had I've had really positive feedback, and I I, I think... I've sold about a hundred of them at this point. So they're, they're really starting to take off. And it's funny. I, I seem to sell more to, uh, to Europe than I do the States, which I can't figure out. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe the, the tanks and hangers, Yankee tanks and all those sort of things, they seem to be much more readily available. Old large format developing options seem to be more oh. readily available in the States. So maybe folks have got, access to those sort of things and they're kind of kind of happy using them i don't know yeah yeah that's uh that makes a lot of sense um and patterson's uh, a uk company so they're uh, they're available all through europe as well as here in the states no. did, but did you take inspiration at all because what was the until the mod 54 came out uh, am i right in thinking jeff there wasn't really uh, an easy option other than trade developing or maybe those Jobo systems. And I'm not so familiar no. with those, you know, no, not really. BZ tanks. Are they called BZ tubes? Or those ones that uh, the large format company in America makes. I want to say uh, BZ tubes. Someone. Uh, I know what you're talking about. They're, they're small tubes that you yep. coil small. the film up and drop yeah. it in. Small quantities of develop and you keep rolling them, yeah. don't you? Yeah. It's, it sounds painful. to juggle all those you you know and i i gotta tell you i think the guys at mod 54 did a great job they really opened up you know at home large format 
processing mm. to a bunch of folks. Um, and they should get a lot of credit for, you know, kind of the boom in large format that we're seeing now as far as uh, folks processing at home. So I, I take nothing away from those guys. I'm just looking at, uh, I've, I've got your page up now, and there's a, the main photograph is a, a, a yellow um, film reel. I was just, just just studying the way that you actually load load the film onto it, because you were saying how it how it's easy, and I'm looking at it thinking, yeah, that that does look easy. And the just just to get my head around it, are you um, loading the the four inch side of the film into it first, or is it or does it stand up on and go on with the the five inch side? I'm just struggling to get uh, perspective. On on four by five, it it slides in portrait. So the the five inch side slides it into the reel and coils around. Right. So it's as if like it's stand, like it's standing up in, in portrait. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. The side inwards, Simon. Oh, right. Gotcha. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is important. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can see that because you've got the potential because the the support in the at the centre. Uh, right. of it will it's, it's going to touch the film isn't it um, well it, it does a little bit it's hard to say really it, it it it's not it's not terribly impacting on the film sorry jeff go on no no i was i was going to say the same thing it's it's not that it's it's going to scratch the film or but where it does make minimal contact um it's it's going to produce a line on the film uh, if you load it backwards. I've done this. I know for a fact. Yeah, I've done. I've done it with. So I've you just to come to, to bring everything to the table. I've got one of Jeff's uh, reels, which I hesitate to say I paid for um, full price. And, full price. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I also have the Stearman Press SP four four five tank. And I have the uh, mod fifty four. So here's a here's a an honest assessment from someone who's used certainly the the Patson, the mod fifty four and the Stearman tanks a lot. And Jeff's one now I've just used it the one time. Uh, so loading them, there's the first thing. I think um, they all they all to be fair take a, a little bit of getting used to so you you ought to just take some spent four or five film a sacrificial film and play around with your eyes open and then and then do it with your eyes closed (laughs) Uh, before you get into it certainly before you get into a changing bag where you're likely to get the film sweats Uh, in the darkroom it's not so bad because you've got you know you you can you can set yourself out properly and organize yourself and things aren't half as bad in a dark room as they are in a dark bag when things start going uh going wrong so the first one i had was the pat the mod 54 and uh that's that's probably the the there's probably more things to go wrong with that than any of them um and as it's quite a knack to getting the films in the fingers and so they don't end up in the same slots as each other uh once you get used to it it's fairly easy to do you can run your fingers down the side of the film and feel a consistent gap you can move the sheets up and down and if they're all moving properly it's okay 
if you're too vigorous on your agitation, particularly if you're using uh, inversion agitation, which is probably recommended, then sometimes I've had the odd sheet come out, but not not too much. So all in, uh, and, and also, um, if you do inadvertently load them back to front, they will get scratched to buggery really um if you if you put the emulsion side facing where the fingers are you'll have finger shaped marks six finger shaped marks on your sheet <laughs> yeah, you have six fingers six fingers yeah well like most people in the fens do before you get that joke in um so the uh, and they they're designed to this is designed like jeff's is into the patterson uh, i don't there is a model number for it but it's the one that takes one liter of chemicals and three 35 millimeter rolls or two 120 rolls it's that tank um i think that's the pt 117 yeah i think uh, it is the 117 the only way i knew that is because i recently had to go online and order us a, a new center column and um i wasn't quite sure it, it just sold them by the code and i thought well that's not very helpful uh, so I had to go and do a Google search to find out what the hell the tanks were. And I think yeah, you're right. I think for it's their Super System 4 three-reel tank. Yeah. I have another tank in the corner of my darkroom, which is about a meter tall. And goodness knows how many reels that takes. And I, I keep it in my darkroom purely because I, I have no idea what to do with it. But one day, <laughs> one day um, I will it's do it. It's impressive, though. And that's what it is. Counts. It's really big. It's like, it's like going into an Italian restaurant and get, getting the waiter to turn up with his big peppercorn grinder, you know. <laughs> you're not quite sure what the what the what the purpose of it is but it looks good <laughs> so um so moving on the next one i got was the stearman press tank and i really like that um uh, i they yeah i i think it's a great design it takes less you four four sheets of film and it takes just under 500 mil of chemicals the only thing is it takes uh, – I, I think your, your inversion has to be fairly erratic. Otherwise, you can uh, – uh, you, you it, it'll tend to leave some marks on the non-emulsion side of the film, which is in contact with a few bits of support material from the, from the film holders. Now, if you do have marks on the non-emulsion side, as I've had before, um, it doesn't show up through – the print. Um, don't know about scanning because I don't scan four or five negatives, uh, but I find you can minimize and indeed eliminate the uh, marks just by making your inversion technique a bit more random. Uh, I think it's probably just to, if you're consistently inverting in the same direction or as, as Stearman suggests, sort of one way and then go another way, uh, um, I, I don't think it's encouraging enough flow in the right places. So if you're using that, I, I've found certainly that a kind of erratic inversion. And they're, they're pretty easy to load. Um, if you want one to, lo to get to grips with loading straight away, probably the Stearman is the one that just leaves load a little bit easier. Um, now, I, with yours, Jeff. Uh, I take I, exception to that. Well, uh, well, well, let me finish because you won't oh, be yeah. disappointed. Um, I, I did. It is easy. Yours is easy to use, but it took me a while to figure out the best way. I thought I'm going to get in a muddle in the dark. So it, in the end, I found it easier to um, uh, lie it on its side 
because it's exactly. got like um, flat edges, hasn't it? Yeah. And, then, and then I, as, I, as I load one film in, I then move it around to the next notch, and I know, and then I feel for the the middle finger. <laughs> Sorry, I feel for the middle finger and uh, slide the next one in <laughs> under there. Uh, but it, to be fair, Jeff, I, I did need to do it for. I did practice five or ten minutes. So I wanted to get it right. I didn't want to get the darkroom sweats, you know. But um, oh, exactly. then, then it was super easy. I have to say, it was super easy, and the film's really secure in there, and you're getting. Um, uh, and and I got good results. There was no, there was certainly no marking on the on the non-emulsion side. Certainly not on the emulsion side. Um, so I, I just need to do more. I haven't shot much four five film recently. Uh, I, I was, I was, I was wanting to use it for X-ray film, and I know we chatted a bit offline about this, Jeff. And and my concern certainly, you can't use the double-sided X-ray film that I use, and many others do in the Stearman press cam uh, tank because the ribs on the holder, maybe not the new holders, I'm not sure, but this, my one's certainly got ribs down it, and that'll certainly uh, make a nice mark on your emulsion. Uh, the, uh, the Mod 54, the fingers will certainly rub off. You'll have your six fingers on your sheets. Right. And your one, um, I, I don't know. The... the there is minimal there's a little bit of contact in the center in the center retaining arm springy thing uh, and at first thought i thought oh well that's going to scratch the emulsion but you had some other thoughts on this didn't you to do with nominating one side as a primary emulsion or something yeah exactly so i've i've shot the double-sided x-ray as well and mm-hmm. you know the the reason it's double-sided is so when the x-ray lab techs go to load it, they don't have to think about it. Right? <laughs> There's no film notch on it. So That's right. There is no film notch. Way, you know, take the image. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> now, there is mammography film that's single-sided and has a film notch on it, yeah. uh, x-ray film. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about. Um, so the double-sided film... Is just that you have emulsion on both sides. So what I tend to do is nip a corner off and, you know, create my own film notch. Hmm. That way um, I know what the primary side is and I can always, and I make sure I load that to the inside. So if there are artifacts uh, left by the film reel, it's going to be on the backside emulsion. And it tends not to be as noticeable at that point. Hmm. Well, I'm going to give it a go. Um, I've, I've got um, a load of x-ray film cut down into 4.5 size. And uh, I last shot some, uh, oh, about uh, a month ago. But I haven't, uh, and I've developed all of those. So I'm going to, the, the next lot that I do, I'm going to just... Um, Use your use your reel. I mean, you know, because I'm cutting down the X-ray film. I've mentioned this before. Uh, I, I am damaging it in the process of cutting it down, but I'm I'm not worried about that. So um, I'm not going to be too precious about e- even if there is a little mark left behind. Uh, right. But I think I'm going to I'm going to nominate uh, one side to be the primary emulsion and try and take care of that side. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll work well for you. Hmm. Also, the uh, you know one of the other nice things about the reel you have is 
if there are variations in the film height-wise or width-wise, it really doesn't make that much difference. Um, it'll still slide in hmm. and still retain, still be retained in the film reel. Yeah, uh, and I know there are variations because sometimes when I go to slide them into the dark side, some kind of just fall in and i'm sure they might fall out again if i'm not careful uh, and some are pretty tight you know because it's just my again i'm just cutting it down with a guillotine and you know maybe not yeah exactly it's, it's, i'm not using some kind of automated uh, automatic process that, that has to be scary in the dark thinking about that process <laughs> well i've got a I, i'm not completely dark i've got a there is a i'm using i've got a red safe light okay. at, uh, probably two meters away Right on uh, the the upside to orthochromatic film. Yeah, yeah. There we go. So you're not tried X-ray. I've got loads of X-ray. Um, what I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, Simon. This um, camera that you keep reminding me about, which is down by my feet, I'm going to over the weekend. I'll load up. I'll cut down some film for it, and I'm going to give it back to you, and you can play with X-ray film. <laughs> well, I. I... I, I'm not sure, but I may actually have some X-ray film. Yeah. Um, although it's in four by five, because um, that was my one of my presents I had from the emulsive Secret Santa. Which okay. um, I've got to say, if you're listening to this, you're already too late to join it because uh, yep. today is today is Thursday the thirty first, and this is the last day of uh, being able to get on board with the uh, emulsive Secret Santa event. But I I got something like about seventy odd sheets. Uh, hmm. They're being cut down to four by five, which is possibly X-ray film and possibly double-sided. And it's around about. I'm I'm still trying to work out the rating, but I think it's probably about twenty-five. So that that's that's pretty standard for X-ray film, isn't it? Twenty-five. Well, uh, the double-sided stuff, the Fuji HRT HRU stuff, is a hundred. Oh right. Um, okay. The uh, the mammography stuff, I don't know, Jeff. Do you, what's the mammography stuff? The single-sided. I think I was exposing it at uh, about ISO 50. Hmm. Oh, just, just do a bit of Google. I tell you, um, I think it was it was either Wayne or Greg, wasn't it? Shoots a lot of the single-sided stuff. Sorry, yeah, guys. I, I, Wayne uh, Setzer or Greg Obst. I can't remember which of these guys, maybe both of them. Certainly one of them shoots a lot from an American supplier. Uh, the trouble is in the UK, we don't have really a ready supply. Most of it comes in from overseas. And so... The Fuji stuff you can get imported and you can even incur the customs charge and it's still a good deal, whereas the uh, single-sided stuff carries a bit more price tag and you're still going to be hit with the import mm. taxes and then it just starts getting – I think it's still cheaper than buying. You know, oh, it's um, still a dollar a sheet, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is fantastic for 8 by 10 large format. But I don't know how long it'll – presumably it'll eventually die away because what a – you know what are the medical profession using now? Are they are they some must still be using X-ray film, but is it going digital? How it's, does that work? Everything's going digital, um, but it's used a lot in uh, the film variants are still used a lot in developing countries and in veterinary medicine. Okay, so it's it's still readily available. It it is getting harder and harder to find, though. I I will give you that. The price is starting to come up on it. Um, but still a quarter of the price of, uh, you know, conventional, conventional film. Yeah. Well, well, going, going back to what you're just saying there, Andrew, about uh, cutting some down to size, because just to re recap, you 
well, I, I, I sort of foisted upon you um, a half plate camera mm. uh, with a couple of uh, very nice lenses, and it's and it's a it's it's turn of the century kind of camera, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's got a Thornton Picard uh, roller blind shutter on it. So in, in theory, you could, you could mount an Aero Ektar onto that, uh, but, but it'd be heavier than the entire camera, and uh, and uh, yeah, it, it probably wouldn't be a good idea. Um, but the, I was, I really was hoping that you would have have the have the um, the bravery to cut that down to size and have a go with that that Thornton Picard shutter. Yeah, because you've been talking about using, wanted to use a meniscus lens, and one of those lenses is a Taylor Taylor Hobson um, rapid I know. view. I, I'm a bit frightened by it all, to be honest, because you did show me in your in your living room about months ago. Yeah. Oh, it, you, this is how you work it, and it, and this is how the shutter works. And I thought, oh, I'm going to break that. <laughs> yeah, don't pull too hard. <laughs> that's the uh, <laughs> that's the key to it. And I've I've already forgotten how you actually adjust the shutter speeds. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, well, so you scared me a bit with it, really. And it, I felt- it, it does seem that way. Well, I'd, I'd still like you to give it a go because the other part is I'm, I'm just thinking how I'd actually develop that. Um, yeah, uh, because it's well, really, it's what, we, what we need, tank, what we it? need to do, and I think we've talked about this off air. I need to present myself at the Six Towns Darkroom on a Tuesday night, and I and I, I, I am conscious that I could easily do that on my way to one of my operational bases in the northwest of England. I could come and see you. And um, on my way up there, yeah. And uh, the logistics haven't actually, since we spoke about that, haven't worked out. But I, I've still got it in mind. And then you see, I could um, come armed with some film, cut yeah. down to size, and we could play around with it under studio conditions and do some portraits. That would be good. And we have uh, a studio. Um, That's the thing. We have lighting. And I could bring my trays. I could bring my, yeah. all I need. I've got my trays with glass bottoms and. Uh, some Rodinal developer, which I use, one to a hundred, and developing's easy because you just do it. You can keep your red safe light on. Yeah. I do turn it off because it's. I don't think it's. It's probably a bit bright. Really, it's supposed to be a really dim five watt red safe light, but mine's fifteen watt, and it doesn't seem to have affected anything I've done. Um, so uh, I think if you're careful, um, you'll be fine. Well, I, th- I think we should try and get that date uh, finalised, yeah. and we can publicise it, and we can sell tickets then as well, can't we? Mm. <laughs> mm. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, I pledge to do this. I pledge to at least cut the film down um, by the time we um, put out another show. I'll have a film cut down to size and try and work out how to load it because I'm not sure. You, you think it might, these weird film holders might have some adapter in there for taking plates is that right yeah i think well i think the, the actual film holders you have are actually designed for plates or oh, maybe they've got adapters in for taking sheets precisely yeah just to mm. um take up the take up the extra space uh, mm. needed okay that sounds yeah. exciting it does doesn't it yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah all right i'll do that i promise okay that's good and uh jeff let's let's talk a little bit I mean, you touched, touched upon it, but I'd like to go into a little bit more detail in, in you know, the the design process that you you go through. Because you, you you said earlier about you would you would see how how it's been done, and you are thinking, well, I can see another way of doing this and uh, and and doing it better. And you've got the, a, a background in uh, mechanical engineering, and uh, and one of the things that fascinates me is that 
you know, it, it, this goes with all all cameras. Um, you'd look at a camera and you're, and you're there thinking, if only it did this, or why did they do it like that? Exactly. And and, and so on. And, and, I mean, there have been a couple of times when I've gone through this thought process and I realise, ah, oh, they've done it like that because they've got to do it like this to make that bit over there work. And so some, some things that, you know, uh, can, a design can be affected by something that's not immediately apparent, but other things seem to be bleeding obvious and thinking, well, why did they do that? So I take you, you've, I think you've already indicated it there. So that you've, you've come across that kind of thing a few times. Yeah. Oh, exactly. You know, and especially working on older cameras, you know, a lot of the reasons they had to go down a, a particular path, you know, might've been due to manufacturing processes that were available then. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, technology driven or the materials they had available for it. Um, the Graflex SLRs are an incredibly simple camera. Um, there is really nothing high tech about them. It's gears and springs and levers and, you know, bits of glass and silk cloth. Um, and, you know, it's. The reason that they're designed the way they're designed, you know, has to do with the technology that was available today or then. You know, if we were to build this hammer today, uh, you know, there are things that, you know, would definitely be done differently. You know, I'm sure it'd have an electronic shutter of some type in it. Um, you know, the mirror might actuate in a different way to where the flange length is much shorter. Um, and it's funny, these are all things I'm actually working on. Uh, the upside of being a, a mechanical design engineer is I'm, I'm used to working in in the world of, of 3D design, uh, 3D CAD systems. Uh, so as I've designed components for these cameras, I've actually developed 3D models that are incredibly accurate of the different camera bodies and components that bolt onto it. So as I've, as I've done more and more things, I've, I've actually built out almost a complete camera. Um, and I think we're going to see probably towards the end of next year that I'm going to offer a complete large format SLR. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something I'm working towards. Um, I have a, a fairly unique shutter setup uh, that I'm working on that will allow you to flash sync at, uh, at a multitude of speeds, uh, which is something you really can't do with the, uh, with the Graflex SLRs or, you know, any of the focal plane shutter cameras for the most part. You can do what's called a drop shutter sync to where the shutter curtains open uh, to the film, the mirror's down. When you release the shutter, the mirror flops up and the shutter slides down, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the sync speeds are incredibly slow at that point. They're, they're like one-eighth of a second. Um, I built a three-and-a-quarter, four-and-a-quarter Graflex SLR that'll flash sync at one-sixtieth. Um, and it's cool. I've shot skateboard stuff indoors with flash. Um, you know, you're able to stop movement on them for the most part. So I'm 
I'm taking a lot of lessons learned off some of the more exotic test bed cameras that I've built and moving that into, uh, you know, a practical design uh, for a new big SLR. And I, I, I think there's a market out there for it. Oh, there's, there certainly is. And that, and my, my ears pricked up um, then when you actually said about you working on um, a, a effectively a new shutter design because anybody that listens to any other um, analog-based uh, podcasts, at some point uh, they would have heard things about how difficult it is to actually make a, a new camera these days because uh, just about the only people making shutters are Copal and uh, in Japan and they are which they'll make you a shutter but I think you've got to buy a million of them or something a ridiculous number um, and uh, and that's that's been the problem with say like the the, the reflex camera which is a 35 millimeter kickstarter camera from a couple of years ago that seems to have fallen over a bit from last time I've heard and it the shutter has been the biggest problem and the, the, that's that always seems to be the problem with, with with cameras so i'm i'm guessing that just the sheer scale of a large format shutter is is something that's probably helping you is it because i assume that miniaturizing something is 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 where things get particularly difficult i, I don't know is that the case i a hundred percent it's uh you know, because of the scale, it makes it a lot easier to work on. Um, you know, parts are more readily available. Uh, you know, the shutter is going to be servo-driven. Um, so it makes the electronics, the motors, the controllers, all that stuff kind of off-the-shelf items. And it's funny, uh, we all know Ethan Moses, and I know he's working on a shutter uh, for his cameras right now. Um, and I think he's been fairly successful on them as well. He's a hell of a good guy. Mm. Shout out to Ethan there. Do you know, you know, Ethan? Camera yeah, he, yeah, on the he's, show. He's, he's, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, he goes on everyone's show. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he, does. He, was on, he was on somebody else's last week, I think. <laughs> yeah. He was on the FPP just recently. I think on their new one back on October the 15th. There he was. <laughs> in Spain last week on uh, Nico's uh, photo news on YouTube I saw him so that was the guy who did the review of the one instant wasn't it 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 was it was I'll put a link to his site in the show notes because I was going to check him out I've seen him before but I'm going to have another look a really good guy Hmm. Um, yeah he's been he's been really kind to myself and my products so um, it was one of those situations to where one of my friends goes, hey, uh, you're, <laughs> you're on uh, Nico's photo. <laughs> really? <laughs> so went back and uh, watched the YouTube show, and it was, it was really nice. Um, he has a couple of the reels now, and uh, I'm not sure if he's used them or not. Um, usually no news is good news. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, I was anyway. just going to say on the subject of uh, of, of Ethan though he's also uh, as of a I don't know about six weeks ago maybe a couple of months ago he became a permanent uh, host on the homemade camera 
podcast as well with uh, with Graham uh, Young and Nick Lyle. So he's, he's oh. on there as well. And uh, so, I mean, when he was on our on our show, he'd been on several of the shows recently at the time. So right. uh, when we came up with the term pod tart, and uh, that's exactly <laughs> what he is. He's a true pod tart. <laughs> that is fabulous. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, so so design stuff. So, like I was saying, the uh, I I really think I'm I'm heading towards a complete camera. Um, I in talks with uh, a representative from Zenit uh, to build lenses for me. Um, you know, not necessarily an in, inexpensive thing to do, but um, they'll run. Sorry, my, my ears pricked up then you, you said you're in talks with zenit so is zenit a still like a, a real company is it still yeah. doing stuff in oh yeah no. i've yeah, got, you I've got brand new lenses from them right now and what about cameras are they still making uh, what are they still doing anything camera related i don't know but i know they're they're building modern slr lenses um hmm. Um, I know the gentleman who is uh, distributing them here in the States. Uh, so who's also the, the Roloflex distributor here. Yeah, but so there is a, last year, I think it was, there was a, a, a tie-in with Leica. Um, yeah. And, uh, which was, I think that was ultimately using, it was more Leica than it was Zenit. But, uh, but yeah, they, I think the actual... It's KM. Well, we would say KMZ, but KMZ mm. um, is the uh, the company. I think the Kranska Gorse manufacturing something or other. I think uh, is 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 what we're talking about. That was like one of the main, probably like the biggest of all the consumer uh, lens manufacturers back in the Soviet days. Was through all all sorts of uh, um, people like LZOS and MMZ and, uh, and 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 so on and so on. So uh, so yeah, I've I have heard that they are still around, and there's been some tie-ins with I think with some of the Chinese manufacturers as well. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's uh, it's always it's always felt a little bit unclear um, where everything was actually coming from and who was building what. That was that was the feeling that I got. So uh, I, I don't know if you're any close to that or not. Um. Yeah, it's I'm I'm sure that it's sourced globally, right? I'm sure that the the Russians do part of it. I'm sure they outsource things to, you know, China or Taiwan, um, you know, just because it's it's cost effective to do so, right? Um, and the quality isn't that bad. In fact, some of the Chinese lenses are actually in fairly good at this point, uh, which is kind of nice, I guess. Um, yeah, well, I've, but, I've used some, uh, I mean, there's some lenses like uh, the Seven Artisans lenses, which are Chinese lenses, yeah. and the, uh, the experiences I've had with them have been very, very good. Um, yeah. So, uh, so ha Hamish Gill imports those, doesn't he? He does, yeah, he does. And I've, I've got the 51.1, um, which is, yeah, I particularly like that, although it, do, it doesn't work too well on my... I bought it more to work with digital than film, and it, it doesn't play as nicely with the Sony sensor that I have uh, than it would do with, uh, with, with film. Well, that's just a 
problem with the way that Sony build their sensor, unfortunately. Our good buddy Jimmy Hickford bought uh, one at the photography show. I don't know what which one he bought. Thirty. I want to say it was a. I don't know. I'd be lying if I could remember what it was. But he's got um, a Leica M3, and he bought one of these seven artisans off Hamish, who I'm sure did him a great deal. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, in talking about lens design, um, I was chatting with Jason Lane, uh, who was on on our show a few uh, a couple of months ago now, I think. Yeah. And uh, he was, and he's making the uh, the 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 dry plate holders, which was uh, successfully um uh, uh kickstarted you know and uh they they're making good progress with that and uh yeah he actually i've can remember now he asked me to mention something about that and i've got i've got it here which is, a, is it to do with the on. uk availability of with uh, analog was, wonderland was that, that it ah yeah that was it i think well there's two twofold um and that's because um paul is it paul paul mckay paul mckay analog wonderland mm. um He's uh, he's interested to know what kind of uh, demand there will be for these dry plates that uh, Jason makes as well. So J Lane dry plates, that's uh, Jason Lane. And uh, so these are going to be potentially available in the UK via Analog Wonderland. But uh, Paul wants to get an idea on what kind of level of interest uh, there will be, in particular in different sizes. Uh, because yeah. yeah, there are people out there with like uh, like the half plate camera that I mentioned, which will which will take half. Uh, sorry, the other half plate was it quarter plate? Half plate they are. So yeah, there, there'll be some people out there that would want those, um, and some will want to, to try them in four by five. And although it's it's a case of if your camera, if you, you're going to need some kind of holder that's compatible with the plate. So it's probably this is, at the moment is driven by what holders are available at the moment, which are primarily going to be antique things whereas when these these new dry plate holders come out from from jason and steve lloyd of chroma camera i must add um then that's going to allow more people to actually use these but uh um i can't remember but did did um how did jason want this information to get to to paul is it via us or directly well to paul i um i'd sent jason an Instagram message weeks and weeks ago, which he hadn't seen. And he, re he responded to it last week and said, I'm sorry for missing it. He said he's, he, he met, he, cause I talked about, I was asking about UK availability and this was like, like ages ago. So he, he responded to this message and said, said that Paul Mackay was looking to stock these things and it'd be grateful just for us to get the word out to, and then to be fed back uh, to Paul. So I, I did a, a post on the large format photography facebook group uh, earlier in the week saying just that and and paul has responded and said thank you very much i'll keep monitoring this post and i also did a tweet on it as well so i, I can't say we we're going to reach everybody but you know if folks listening to this and they're interested in shooting uh, pictoriographica uh, dry plates which in the states i don't know what paul's going to be selling them at won't, won't be quite as cheap as this i i, I don't suppose um because he's got to get them over here and so on and and yeah. make it make a buck uh but they're typically 40 dollars for a pack of 10 uh coated drive plates in america which i think is just fabulous four by five yeah that's a four by yeah. five size yeah. yeah but i think it's just an awesome price i think you know as someone who's used to shooting instant film and who's considering um you know getting some more one instant film at about 30 bucks for three sheets um <laughs> 
you know, it's it's uh, it, it, it's great for something that is going to produce a very unique, you know, lovely glass plate image which you can hold in your hand or you can contact print from, and it's just a lovely object. Uh, so, you know, if you've if you've backed the Kickstarter, and uh, I think they're now at a stage where they're getting some prototypes made. They've gone through the design iterations. They've gone through backwards and forwards with the manufacturer, and um, they're well on the way to. Uh, well, I can, m- I can be more. Their, I can be more specific. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it, they've got uh, production representative prototypes. Yeah, and they're being fabricated. Yeah. So hopefully that's the that's the last one that they have to yeah. do before everything actually starts to get yeah. made proper. And I think they were they were on target to have that done in October. I think so. They're pretty much there, aren't they? They're pretty much on their schedule at the moment. Yeah, I was talking to Jason oh, two or three weeks ago, and yeah, I think they're right on schedule. You, you know, and it's funny to loop into something you were saying earlier about five by seven. Uh, format um i found myself on the film reels that there's just been an overwhelming demand uh for five by seven processing reels and jason was saying that he's been selling an inordinate amount of five by seven glass plates as well so i i think people are discovering how nice five by seven is it's it's kind of the sweet spot. Mm. You know, you can contact print on it, uh, gives you a nice size image. It's, you know, easier to process than 8x10. The cameras are a little lighter, a little smaller. Um, but, yeah, it's it's funny how, you know, we've both kind of seen uh, the demand for 5x7 go up. I have you to know, say, if, it, there, if there's someone out there making a new affordable five by seven camera um you know like because there's a lot of folks now doing lightweight and relatively inexpensive um four by five cameras you know and and they're they're all great five by seven i think uh, and i don't know why maybe something that uh uh, steve or from uh, chroma cameras you know i know he's working on a, a load of backs for his camera different adapters and different add ons for his uh, chroma camera but that yeah. five by I think that from what you're saying and from what I've I get a sense that there's a lot of love out there for five by seven, and it's a great intermediary step for you know for for contact printing you know and you could I could see people using that camera with dry plates and make it and just using it as a dry almost like a dry plate camera and making contact prints uh, that's that's how I'd use it because I couldn't yeah, unless I went to the six times dark room I couldn't enlarge from it. Yeah. You know, it's funny you talk about different backs. Um, I've started to produce what I call a project back. It's a graph lock back or a spring back that has a bolt flange on it. Um, so For homemade camera builders. Yeah, exactly. And uh, right now I'm working on a 5x7 uh, spring back. Hmm. That, uh, Just build your own. Yeah, build your own, or if you want to build a reducing back or an Intrepid or another camera, um, it allows you to do so without having to cannibalize cameras. Um, 
which is really... So you could build a, you could build a five by... A, the, the most, we're getting into the homemade camera podcast, but if you had one of your type, <laughs> one of your type backs on a simple box construction, and then you did that sort of TLR design where you have a box within a box, uh, you've got a focusing, haven't you? Um, yeah. You know, you've got to design it so you don't get light in. But if you basically have a box sliding within a box, like a TLR, with a simple lens mount on the front, you've got a five by seven large format camera, haven't you? At its simplest, I would think. I have uh, a friend uh, that's over in the Hertfordshire area by you folks, and uh, he's he's built a simple uh, pinhole camera. Uh, you know, wooden box painted black on the inside, uh, uh, a copal shutter with uh, a pinhole plate on it, and one of the 4x5 project backs screwed to it. Mm. Uh, took him an afternoon to build it, and saw he was out at uh, oh, Cambridge College. Cambridge. Well, that's just on my, uh, it's just down the road from me. Do, do you know Dave Shrimpton? Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, we, so we, were talk, we were talking about him just before we came on air because we were talking about future guests and we're hoping oh, that Dave would come on. He will. Uh, um, he's a great guy. He's who built the pinhole cameras. Um, mm. It's funny. I do a lot of development work with Dave. So to, to, the, point, to the point, he actually bought a 3D printer. And I'll I'll send him files so he can print them on his end, um, you know, and try stuff out. Um, it kind of gets around a lot of the customs issues, right? You know, go ahead and try to tax my electrons. <laughs> so it's uh, it, it's kind of a neat thing that uh, the 3D printing does. It's allow you to to share products rapidly uh, with other folks in a co-development setting. Yeah. Anyway, Dave's a good guy. You should have him on. Yeah. Well, I think that that will be happening. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. So um, we look forward to it. I mean, it's actually, I was hoping to actually go and do one of his workshops at the right at the start of this year and then life just completely got in the way. So that, that didn't actually happen. But uh, uh, I know we in Fleming, um, uh, oh, that's yes, Ian's been on one, hasn't he? That's right. Yeah, he highly yeah. recommended it. So, uh, so hopefully Ian's that, an interesting that might... chat. I, I don't know how much you talked to Ian or know about his background. Um, if, yeah, well, we've I've certainly I've, I've communicated with him on, on, a, on a few occasions, and he's um, and I've I listened to his life story when he was on the Sunday Sixteen podcast as well. Oh, okay. So, well, apart from he drives trains now, doesn't he? But he was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, um, they're proper trains, by the way. Do not, don't, don't make jokes yeah, about, about sorry, the trains. It's a real Johnson. train. He uh, had a background in Ardman animations, didn't That's he? That's right. That's, yeah. yeah, he worked on. Uh, I think he worked on Wallace and Gromit. He did. Yeah. 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 He has. Uh, he has one of my four by five SLRs that mm -hmm. I built for him with a big projector lens on it. I'm not surprised. He's got most <laughs> he has, things. He does. Yeah. And uh, Dave Shrimpton has uh, one of my uh, super reflex forty fives. Uh, yeah, I think I think we've seen that one. But by, by the way, you, you're disappearing from your microphone at the moment. So if you if you could move a little bit closer, we'll, we'll hear you a little bit better. Is that better? Oh, much better. 
That's a, that's okay. a, yeah. Um, well, let's let's just move things on for what, what uh, to the, to the next stage. Because we're we're going to start winding things down a little bit now. Um, but one thing that we didn't get chance to do last time was uh, we had a couple of emails um, that we we didn't get to read out, and I think this would be a good time. Uh, if we if we could do that, and uh, please feel free to join in on the commentary on the on this one, Jeff. So uh, have you have you got the the emails teed up, uh, Andrew? Um, teed up would be uh, an over exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, do you have them handy? <laughs> um, do I have them handy, Andy? Yeah. I've got so many pages open. I've got lensless not lenders what do we um large format open and i've got kickstarters open i've got wikipedia's open graphlex where's my emails gone oh there we yeah oh there we go okay the first one's about indian summer yeah i know just bear with me and just um, and yep. just and just to start that one off, um, that was yeah. Give a, the uh, background. Give the background yeah, to that. Which I can't remember all of the background at all now. But it was actually going back a few yeah. episodes where we we were talking, talking about, nonsense, uh, the term we? Indian summer. I think I asked the question: Do you have an Indian summer over there in America? Hmm. And uh, and we didn't actually understand where the where the term came from. And no. uh, because I I think I thought it might have been something to do with the colonial times with uh, Britain hmm. in India, but it turns out that's completely wrong. Yeah, so we've had a couple of bits of feedback on since we got into that particular segue. On uh, Christine Pennock, was it on the uh, on the Facebook group That's posted, right, yeah. and also someone yeah, I read this. someone had the uh, took the trouble to write to us. So I always like it when people take the trouble to write. It means they care enough, <laughs> even if it's to, even if it's to complain. <laughs> In fact, if you if you walk out of a restaurant that you hated. And you can't be bothered to even complain. Um, then I think it, the restaurant's fated to disaster. If you care enough, then you should complain, and then maybe they'll get better. Anyway, so um, S. Benjamin Farah, uh, Ben at uh, something, Ben anyways, uh, Ben Farah. It seems it seems the term Indian summer has nothing to do with the subcontinent. This is a very abrupt email, Ben. I feel like I'm being told off slightly because uh, it doesn't say dear and thank you. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like a text message. It seems the term Indian summer has nothing to do with a subcontinent, but came from North American, oh, but came from North American natives who spoke of the common occurrence to the English colonists. So it is something to do with North American natives. Yeah, but not, but it not, not to do with India. That was, that was the point. Oh, is that what we said? Yeah, well, that's what we assumed. As in the Indian mm -hmm. subcontinent, it's nothing to do with that at all. So it's really um, Native American summer. We should call it now. Is that right? I guess so. Yeah. Although when I travelled through um, Navajo territory a few years ago, just five years ago, maybe three, four, 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 five years ago, um, you know, you're going down Monument Valley and places like that in whatever state they use, that Utah, or Arizona, one of those, isn't it? And um, there's just they just referring to themselves maybe because it's they're looking for you know they're just using they're just saying well it's an indian reservation and you know they don't say this is a native american reservation or come and see you know come and see the indian trading post or something i was surprised to see the term used quite widely as opposed to the more politically correct term of native america yeah whatever 
where I live in uh, in the state of Washington, there's a lot of uh, indigenous folks up here, and you know we have uh, Indian casinos, there you go. and the Indians call them Indian casinos. Yeah, so it's all right for them to call themselves Indian, I think, but maybe not so much. Yeah, and we need. Yeah, this is a fraught with peril topic. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 move on before we cr- we crash that one even more. So the other email we had was uh, from Jock Jock Jockim Jockim Gross. Jo- I, 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 I think that's Jockim. Yeah, but could be. You go. You've got to say it with a bit of phlegm in the back of your throat. I reckon. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> Hello, Simon and Andrew. I very much enjoy listening to the LFPP. Exclamation mark. No, don't get me started on exclamation marks. I just listened to the last one with Alan Brock, and as you were all, and as you were all still wondering what cutaway corners, I don't think I think I know what they are. Uh, on a ground glass, therefore, I simply send you the answer from the pro engineers at Signer, and um, then it, it gives you a link which says go to page nine, the three isolated lines at the centre of it. Have you done that, Simon? I did. What does it say? What does it say? I think it was just make sure that the bellows weren't interfering with the um, the view of the corner, so you don't get the uh, any well. So you could actually see that the lens is actually covering the corner. What page was it? Page nine. Did I say nine? Yeah. Okay, I'm just opening it now. Ansel Adams talks about using the cutaways to view whether you can see the bits of the lens hood. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's what he says. Page nine. Page, oh, that's page 10. Okay, so I'm on page nine. <laughs> Viewing aids. Um, I was going to say, I honestly did look at this on on October the 6th, but that was a yeah. long time ago now, so I've now completely forgotten what, what I read. Um, for a clear view of the hood limits, to avoid image vignetting, stop down to the working aperture and sight through the cutaway corners of the ground glass. Oh, so this kind of makes sense now because obviously when you when you stop down to your working aperture, it all goes so damn dim. You can't really see anything anyway. Um, it just all looks uniformly dim. But of course, the oh no, is that am I talking nonsense? Anyway, uh, I don't know if I'm talking nonsense. I, I probably am. But it says to look through the cutaway corners of the ground glass screen with the eye close to the screen. So. But it's suggesting doing it down at the full at the working aperture, and then you look through these corners, and there's four arrows pointing to these cutaways where you stick your eye up to it. Okay. And it says with a Fresnel screen, you can more easily take in the whole screen image and see it brighter and with better contrast. Fresnel screens are available for all three Sinar back sizes. The ground glass screen frames having retaining springs for quick fitting and removal of the fresnel screen i have to say that's why I, I, I did love my my sinar for its sheer modularity and the fact that everything is easily you know you can change bellows really easily you can swap front standards to change it into a sinar f to a sinar f to a p whatever i don't know yeah and you know you can buy extension bars and fit a universal uh, um, lens panel in to support the bellows. I mean, it's a very very modular system. And if folks out there are looking to get into into large format, um, 
you know, it's it's you know, it's it's what Alice was using, wasn't it? You know, she yeah. was using a Sinar, and boy, same, same as me. Know, the yeah, F2. so the the Sony World Photographer of the Year uses the same camera as Simon Forster. <laughs> and I was looking at a Toyo wanting that instead. I mean, what, what, what's up with me? Mm. Well, this is the problem, isn't it? You don't yeah. just be. Go back and listen again when you get <laughs> when you feel gas brewing. Go yeah. back again and listen to Alice. Although I think we got a, we almost got a gas brewing up in her, didn't we? As well, I think once you start talking came, about different lenses, it came close. Yeah, she, Alice was getting decidedly gassy towards the end of the show. Well, I did. I did talk about the Aeroactile. So uh, yeah, she was um, she was getting quite worked up about that. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, Jock Jock Hochim Hochim, yeah, him. He, he he goes on to say, by the way, I'm using an F two and a P two. Uh, these the P two is got the full metal front standard and rear standard with all the gears and gizmos and and it turns a heavy camera into a mahusively heavy camera. And I'd upgraded my F1 to a, eventually to a P2 by the time I'd sold it and realized I'd gone far too overboard with it and it was far too complicated and far too heavy and gave up on it all. So he's using an F2 and a P2 with four lenses and I take them both out into the field, not at the same time and despite their weight. You, so you can use these cameras out in the field. I think if you go and hitchhike, hitchhiking, if you go and hiking up a mountain, Maybe you need to rethink, but certainly if you're working out the back of a car, like I am. Well, um, well Robert, who, who bought the his Toyo, which is heavier than my F2, uh, yeah. he's he's planning on taking it. He does a bit of mountaineering, and he's planning on taking it up big hills. Is he? Yeah, and that's Listen. a heavier than one than mine. Yeah, well, he's put, is he young and fit? He's fit. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying he's old, but I don't think he's any younger than me, so uh, <laughs> a similar kind of age. The advantages are just too numerous, and the P2 is not only extremely versatile and precise, it is, yeah. In fact, but it was so precise and versatile, I, it would confuse me. It's very fast to work with just because of that. Well, obviously, you've got, your, you've got a better brain than I have, I think. And it's a whole lot of fun just because of its precision. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Kind regards from an LFPP fan in Germany. Rochim Gross. And he says what Sinar stands for. He says, if you didn't know, it stands for Studio. Apparently, he might just be making this up. <laughs> studio, Industry, Nature, Architecture, and Repro. I, well, it could be. And he's, he shares some lovely pictures, mainly of his camera on an awesome wooden tripod. I was more attracted to the tripod than the camera. He's got... Um, some pictures of his camera, of his Sinar, certainly the top ones are P2, um, but then the F might be there as well, and they're all on this awesome wooden tripod. And I think if you're a large format photographer, you've got to have a wooden tripod, otherwise you're just not serious about your art. Well, I've, I've got an aluminium tripod. Or, no, no. Or, or aluminium for our aluminum. American friends. No. Um, no. Actually, we have more American listeners than, than, than British listeners, so we, we should perhaps say aluminium um, and Z, uh, just to make them feel more comfortable. Um, but I do, I do like these, these wooden ones. Well, my, my aluminium one is uh, it's, it's very heavy, but it works really well. I mean, once you've actually yeah, I've got anything a, up on it, it's, it, nothing's moving. I've got a heavy aluminium Manfrotto one as well. And it's uh, it is awesome, but this wooden one is just great. How about do you, you have a wooden Do you have a wooden tripod, Jeff? 
Um, I have a really cool old Linhoff aluminum tripod. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, a couple of uh large large format tripods that are aluminum as well not a lot of wood so i wonder if they if are they are they particularly sturdy i mean this does not look as sturdy who cares <laughs> it does look good though yeah if you're a large format photographer you've got to get yourself some wood yeah and a hat <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, a, and a hat as well so. Hmm. Right. Well, I, I think we need to move on very quickly from that. Um, <laughs> um, so is, um, I've got an, I've got a, another message from our it? friend oh, Monty okay. Monty Craig. Oh right, yeah, yeah. He, he wrote um, in the in our podcast group, didn't he? Recently, he did. Yeah, which I'm now desperately trying to find again. Um, I think we. I couldn't work out from whether we've upset him or not. <laughs> so Monty was. Um, let's refer to him in the same way. The guy who writes in about lenses, isn't he? Yeah. That we never answer, except that we never we, answer. We, we but we have, did. But we have we Monty. We have now answered it. Okay. Yeah. Maybe you just haven't caught up with um, with with the shows yet. But uh, Monty was ob- is obviously listening to us, which is lovely. And uh, perhaps he hasn't got to the point where we answer his his question yet. So he sends. Um, uh, yeah, apparently, is feeling lucky. Um, so the post says. He says, okay, Andrew and Simon, since I've become the pockle, pockle, the podcast chuckle on your show, well, I'm not sure about that. Um, and then in brackets, kind of funny that I am mentioned fairly regularly as, uh, quotes, the guy who asked a question about lenses. We'll try to get to that later. <laughs> yeah, I think we did. I think we did kind of put it off for a few shows or we ran out of time, didn't we? Because Simon was talking too much. I am asking another question about lenses. Oh, there you go. It's just for you, Simon. If I was choosing between a Rodenstock Grandagon, if that's how you pronounce it, N, N for Noddy, 90 F6.8. So that's a Rodenstock Grandagon N90 F6.8. Or a Schneider Super Angulon 95.6, which would be the better choice? Hmm. Or should I also look at a Kaltar and Fuji lenses too? Thoughts, everyone, including you, Jeff. Um, I don't have thoughts on that. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> I, well, I, I, I don't have a huge amount of thoughts on it either. But what I will, it, it does go on to say that uh, he's going to be using it on an Intrepid 4x5. Mm. And, the, I, and I, I have the, the Superangulon 90 um which famously didn't work on the camera I bought it for. Um, mm-hmm. So it now looks oh, on the side it, it? Uh, Because it's enormous and it's heavy and it's big. And that would make me think twice about using it on an Intrepid. Um, simply because the Intrepid is such a light camera, um, mm. and that's a really heavy lens. Uh, well, I can. There's four people answered, um, and I think that your your answer there, Simon, was very helpful. And these guys, I think, would add to that. Um, uh, so I'll just Monty Craig says, yeah, he just says, oh, well, I'm using an Intrepid. Uh, so Michael Francesi, oh dear, um, says Kaltars are very often Rodenstock lenses rebranded for the Calumet company. 
I have a 360 Kaltar 2 for my 810 and wouldn't trade it for any other land. That doesn't help. I don't think that comment, Michael, sorry. Uh, but Fraser, yeah, Fraser, this is probably more to the point. I've gone through the same process and ended up opting for the Grand Gone. It was a wee bit lighter, but more importantly to me, it has a 67 millimeter filter ring rather than the 82 of the Angulon. So if it's 67 as opposed to 82, it's going to be physically smaller anyway, isn't it? Yeah. But he says I can use my existing filters. Yeah, I've got a ba- I've got a stack of 67 filters, but I don't think I've got any 82s. He says, okay, it's f6.8, but I suspect I can live with that under a dark cloth. And if it helps, I have the 90 millimeter f8 Fuji lens, and there's nothing really particularly heavy about that. And it is f8, but you know, even in the UK, under a dark cloth, it's all right. You know, and it was cheap enough, and it's a cracking lens. You know, I I wonder if some lenses just seem to let more light through for a for a given f stop. I mean, in the in the classic lenses world, we would now be talking about light transmission and t stops. Would we? Um, yes, we would. Uh, but we're not going to do that here. Um, <laughs> but the, the the reason why I bring that up is because the my five point six uh, angulon is not. As it is not as much, it, I can't think of the right words to get out now. But compared to the the woolen sack, six point eight, I think it is. Um, it's not a huge amount brighter than that, and I was expecting it to be much brighter. It was it was quite a surprise to me. Um, so yeah, your, your light transmission is going is going to have a have a, a difference on that. So because the light transmission is not the same as your f stop, is it's connected mm. to it. But well, I didn't. I didn't know that. Which episode are you talking about? Rather than you repeating it all on this show, what what episodes do I have to go and listen to to find out about light transmission? Um, well, two episodes actually. Uh, you've got episode fifty-two with. Um, oh. How do you know this? I can't even remember who we spoke to. Three shows. There, there is a reason why I know that. Um, and uh, uh, Matthew Duclos of Duclos Optics in in Hollywood, California. Um, he, we did a show on uh, cine optics, and T-stops are far more important than F-stops. Oh, is he, is he the cinematographer Well, you had on a couple of weeks ago or whatever it that's was? That's the point. Two weeks ago, uh, mm. we had uh, Bill Pavetta, or WP Pavetta, um, who sort of continued the theme of talking about the uh, about uh. cine lenses. And it, it's, all, it's all to do with to making sure that when you swap from one lens to another, um, the, the, the exposure on the film or, or digital doesn't really matter is going to be, is going to be the same. So if you're in the same kind of lighting, if you swap a lens, um, it's not going to go slightly brighter because if you, if you're shooting at say F2 on, on one lens, one maker lens, and you uh, swap it out for another F2 lens from a completely different make uh, brand, there's a reasonable chance that the actual brightness within the scene is going to differ. Uh, because of the, what mm. they call the light transmission, which is all to do with T-stops transmission. So that's where you'll see with cine lenses, they don't talk about F-stops, they talk about T-stops instead. And typically an F1.4 uh, lens may have a T-stop of, say, 1, 1.5. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I don't think it's ever, or it's rarely um, faster than the F-stop. It's usually a little bit slower, and sometimes it could be quite a bit slower um, and that doesn't mean that the lens is a, is a poor lens it's just more to do with the the, the lens design itself so the amount of so light's going to be um hampered made dimmer presumably by such things as 
uh, how far it's got to travel because it falls off as a square of the distance, doesn't it? And could that be how many elements it has to pass through and how they're designed and put together? Is all that it's, sort of thing a factor? Loads of things. And you also got coatings as well. Those coatings Coating. will actually take yeah. some, some light away, but it, it right. pays you back with contrast. Yeah. Um, if you, you know, the different kinds of uh, materials that you're making the, the, the actual optical elements from as well will have, will have okay. a bearing on, on that. Mm. Uh, but when you're doing still photography, generally speaking, it just doesn't really matter. But in, in the cine world, it matters hugely. Right. Okay. How do we get onto that? Um, I don't know. It's your fault. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's 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 wind things down now because I th- I, th- I think we've been going on for long enough, haven't we? Now um, feels so, like it. Yeah. So, uh, Jeff, um, it's been great having you on the show. Well, I appreciate the invitation and. Been a pleasure as well. Yeah, well, it's uh, it, we, you've been on our list as as of so many people that we've yet to get to speak to properly. Um, uh, you've been on our list for quite quite some time to get you on on, on the show and talk about your amazing cameras and modifications that you do. And I've got I've got to say, I just I'm still uh, um, uh, un, un not unreasonably, but. Uh, my my level of being impressed. I, I'm sorry about my vocabulary; just completely lost me now. But my level of being impressed with those red highlights on your cameras is uh, is, is 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 more than I think it should be. I just look at them and think that is just so cool. So I, I need to talk to this guy because he's got red bits on his camera. Well, it's you know it's funny. One of the first design jobs I had, I worked for a company that did racing equipment, right? Mm-hmm. So everything had to be flashy and. You know, so I think a lot of that spills over into the camera design. You know, it's got to look cool. Exactly. So yeah, we, it, it matters. These these things matter. Uh, not I to everybody. So. Does to me definitely. Uh, I sometimes put a choose to put on my cameras. I often use soft releases. You know, the things you screw into the. Oh, I hate those. Do you? I do. Anyway, I, I like I, I like a nice red one. I often put a nice red one on. I. I I actually have one on my Nikon F2, and that's quite functional because it raises the shutter release button up into a much more uh, comfortable position. Because it's a proper, it's a Nikon one, and it actually it's yeah. not just that it's got the button on it, but it's also got like a little extension piece, and that's uh, and that is actually pretty functional. Mm. Why I've, do you I've, hate I've, soft releases? And what's I've, wrong with you? Well, to be honest, I, I don't mind soft releases as long as they haven't been painted. Oh, I like a nice red one. Exactly, I don't like that. Oh. Red, blue, green, whatever. No. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. If I had one on my RB sixty seven, then I went and bought an RB one of those fancy RB grips, which I is just going to, uh, w- which has got a trigger on it, which is really nice. It adds a bit more weight to the camera. But so when you screw that thing in, it, you can't have a um, soft release. So uh, I've taken the soft release off my RB sixty seven. Is the soft release the same as a cable release? Is this a or no, it's a little button that yeah. So it's a little button that fit, screws into the same threaded hole as the cable release, and it's just a little button. And the idea is that instead of pressing the whole button down on the camera, you end up just pressing through the middle of the button. So the idea being that you get a more gentle release to the triggering mechanism. I'm, it might just be bullshit. I don't know. <laughs> but um, camera, but I'm, I'm, I'm always one to fall for a bit of marketing bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think it's a case of real real men don't need to have these soft button presses. Well, it's yeah. it's funny the the great big SLRs 
you know, you can handhold those things at 115th, 130th all day long without getting, you know, jitter on the, uh, on the negative, uh, just because, you know, they weigh 13 pounds. Yeah. That's <laughs> the thing. And that's the thing with the RBs and the, and the, um, Pentax six by sevens, you know, I, I, I can, I handhold both of those. Well, I've got, I haven't got my Pentax anymore, but I certainly hold my, and held my RB down to a 30th with no worry at all. It's absolutely yep. fine. And it's just the sheer mass. That, that mirror makes a noise, but it's not moving the camera. No, not at all. I, I'm right there with you on it. So marketing. Yes, got a lot, got a lot to uh, be blamed for, certainly. Um, so so again, um, thank you, Jeff, for, for, for being with us. And have you You're got welcome. any... That's it. Have you got any shout outs you want want to give? You know, I covered most of them. Uh, uh, Nico at Nico's Photo News, uh, Ethan Moses, Dave Shrimpton. You really need to have Dave on. He's hell of a good guy. Yeah. Um, my son, Sam, who's really impressed that I'm on a podcast. <laughs> 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 I, I think he thinks I'm almost cool now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're a film photographer, and uh, do you have photographer's trousers, jeans? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what those are. Well, you have to go and look at uh, Ethan Moses's video on how to be a great photographer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ethan's got a freezer full of them as well. So, mm. uh, you know, they're, yeah, that, they're that cool. You can buy them off him. Yeah. Fabulous. I will, uh, I will check that out. Okay. So um, if people want to see the things that you do, your site and any kind of uh, areas you're on social media and so on, how, how would they find out more about you? Um, photographs are at jeffrey.who on Instagram. Um, and 20th Century Camera is 20th Century Camera, 20th Century Camera, all one word, uh, at Instagram, uh, same website, uh, those are product-based, um, 20th Century Camera on Facebook, and uh, Jeff Perry at Facebook, you know, feel free to friend me. Excellent, excellent. Um, okay, uh, let's head over to... Andrew, have you got any shout-outs this week? Nope. Okay. <laughs> One day I will have some. Um, I'm, I'm sure I have. You know, we, we tend uh, to give them out on as, you know, as the show goes along, don't we? Really. We mention folks, don't we? You know, yeah, I haven't got any, anyone specific to to call out. You know, we've mentioned we've mentioned Steve Segersby, haven't we? He's doing yes. um, he's doing some interesting stuff now. He's making prints and. Uh, He's got yeah. a book coming up as well, hasn't he? He's going to, I've, yeah. I've read he's going yeah. to be stitching his photographs into it as well. That sounds well, I think he's, he's – isn't he making a book out of his Black Shook yes. adventures? We, and if you want to know what the Black Shook adventures are, you need to go back and listen to episode two, three, four, somewhere around there it's, of the large format photography podcast. It's the one where we've got a naked man on the cover, I think. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, so that that's, will – That's um, an easy one to spot. Yes, if you haven't got your wood by then, you can have it with that cover. Right. Um, and how can people keep up with you on social media and stuff like that and other places you might be heard? Who, me? Yeah. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> you, threw, you threw me with all your talk of wood. 
Sorry. No, it was not my. It was not my talk. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me across most most of these uh, socially mediary places as Warboy Snapper, and uh, I have an occasional blog that comes out on WordPress. In fact, watch out because I'll be posting whatever results I get from my Horizon camera. I think you just said WordPress then, by the way. WordPress, did I? I think you did, yeah. yeah. I'm obsessed, aren't I? WordPress. And uh, I hang out on the large format photography podcast Facebook group. But you can find me on Instagram, you can find me on Twitter, and on the Facebook group. And if somebody wants to write into us, what's the best way to do that? Um, Typewriter? Yeah, actually, yeah. Email us then. Uh, I don't know. Why are you asking me? The large format, large format photography podcast at gmail.com Well, yeah, well done. Yeah. I'm asking you because I usually ask that question to Johnny Sisson on the Classic Lenses podcast. So I'm just. Does he know? He usually does. Yeah. Does he? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Right. Okay. And uh, what is it then? You just said it. Large, Which one? Large, is it the large format photography podcast? At gmail.com. At gmail.com. There we go. Sim- simple as that. And we have our face group. I'm as good as Johnny Sisson. Absolutely. Clearly. And we also have our Facebook group, uh, which is the large format photography podcast Facebook group. Hmm. Um, and Jeff's very active in there. That's, that's, that's right. And, uh, and we, we're getting more members and it's it's becoming very vibrant on there as well. And it's all good natured and very healthy. It is. There's no nastiness at all. I keep looking. I keep thinking well shouldn't we be trolled by anybody and um but i'm glad to see you're not you're very nice people that's large format community absolutely um and we can also be well not quite seen uh but we can be heard uh and we actually had a download last week on our youtube channel really Um, we did somebody somebody actually watched it on youtube um and i think the benefit of that is you get subtitles um, so if uh, you're not a native English speaker, um, then I'm not sure how much it helps you because the, the automatic subtitling is not great. Um, so uh, it can be quite amusing at times, actually. But uh, but yeah, um, you, you can hear us on YouTube as well on our channel, which is Large Format Photography Podcast. Uh, hmm. And there we go. So uh, And then finally from me... Uh, as ever, my shout out is uh, going to be the Six Towns Darkroom. Um, so if you're around on a Tuesday evening in anywhere in the vicinity of Stoke on Trent in the UK, come along, say hello to us, and uh, well, that's it. You know, you can process your film, talk to you us, might, whatever. You might see me there soon. One day, one day, that'll be that'll be really, really good. Um, if you want to see the kind of stuff that I'm up to, I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic and twitter as simon4 and we're both in the um that facebook group that i mentioned that's ours uh, large format photography page facebook group uh and you can also hear me once a week as well on the classic lenses podcast so that's it for this week um i want to thank kevin mcleod for our theme music which is two finger johnny which is brilliant more wood um, yeah and uh and that's it. So again, Jeff, thanks for thanks for being with us. It's it's been Thank great you having you. It's been my pleasure. That's it. So uh, so that's it. So I hope you enjoyed uh, this fortnight's show, and it'll be great if you can join us again in another fortnight. So goodbye. Goodbye. You can say goodbye as well, Jeff. <laughs> Bye, Jeff. <Jack. laughs> <laughs>